This is Comic Geek Speak episode 1636, Marvel Cosmic Triple Action. Spotlight on the Silver Surfer, Captain Marvel, and Adam Warlock. I'm Adam Murdo. I'm Shane Kelly. And I'm Chris Everly. Welcome, travelers among the stars, <laughs> to this uh, star-studded and content-stuffed episode of Comic Geek Speak. Oh, we got a lot of uh, fun, spacey material to talk about tonight as uh, we deal with uh, three of Marvel's most famous cosmic adventure characters, Silver Surfer, Captain Marvel, and Adam Warlock. Indeed. We've got a ton of visual aids and a ton of uh, information to cover, all courtesy of uh, Professor Chris Eberly here, seated to my right. And uh, so we will get right down to that in short order. But first, homage must be paid to our patrons here and <laughs> our sponsors. Okay, and we're going to, it's going to be a double sponsor for this triple action episode. And beginning with uh, our friends at the Collection Drawer Company, sponsor number one, uh, makers of the Drawer Box Storage System for your comic books. It's a twist on the classic uh, cardboard long box for storing comics. The difference being it opens from the front via a pull-out drawer instead of opening from the top via a lid. It's a great space saver because you can stack your comics a little bit higher without having to worry about being able to access them. Uh, you don't have to disassemble your uh, columns of uh, long boxes to get at the comics because you can just pull that handy-dandy drawer right out of the front. Very convenient. <laughs> no fuss, no muss. You can stack them as many as five high and still be able to access the comics without any uh, inconvenient uh, slinging around of boxes. They come in a variety of shapes and sizes, so you can use them to store not only comics, but magazines, action figures, LP records, and the like. And they also provide a variety of accessories, such as the box locks uh, uh, anchors and the box sort upright dividers to help stabilize your boxes and also to uh, create better divisions of the uh, con their contents, respectively. Uh, you can go to CollectionDrawer.com for more information. That's the Collection Drawer Company, maker of the Drawer Box Storage System, a product we at Comic Geek Speaks use and stand by. Here, here. Absolutely. And our second sponsor, Shane? SuperheroStuff.com, where you go to for all of your... Superhero Stuff! Now, even though it's after the holidays, I'm sure there are still plenty of geeks that have gift cards and disposable income to go to SuperheroStuff.com to purchase a multitude of gadgetry, clothing, and accessories for the geekness in your life. Um, they have plenty of television, movies, comic book, um, T-shirts, pajamas, socks, keychains... Baseball caps, pajamas, sweatshirts, glasses, ties, wallets, anything you could possibly think of that's in the back half of previews, <laughs> which is phenomenal. I love looking at all that that good geeky stuff. Should be available, is available at SuperheroStuff.com. Check their websites often. They have uh, coupon codes. Sign up for their emails. They send out stuff. Their, their, their special discount codes change constantly, and it's always worth looking at. 
um, especially if there's a premiere of a movie, uh, a season premiere of something, the return of something, there's usually a special shop given to that specific character or group of characters. Uh, like when Captain America Civil War came out, there was a whole Civil War stuff coming on. So check out their website, order stuff from them. It's good people that work there. We like them. Lots of great geeky stuff. Don't Not just limited to comics. Like I said, Doctor Who, television, anything. Anything goes. Uh, SuperheroStuff.com, where you go to for all of your superhero, superhero stuff. stuff. And we should mention their warehouse is not far from our yeah. studio. Oh, yeah. yeah. They're, they're hometown boys yeah. for yeah. us. And you mentioned T-shirts. Oftentimes, they sell a lot of T-shirts you will not find in the previous Oh, catalog. absolutely. So absolutely. If you're, if you're, in terms of the sheer breadth and variety of characters in terms of T-shirt images, this is the place to go. So, here, yeah, here. We know quite a few workers there. Mm-hmm. Well, comrades in arms, I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. Uh, it's we haven't done a spotlight. I think the last one we did was Iron Man: The Silver Age back, I think, in the very early fall, perhaps September, I believe. So it's been a while, and uh, I've been working on this uh, actually for several weeks, uh, interspersing it with my schoolwork and store and family and all that. Mm-hmm. And Murd, of course, has no doubt done invaluable supplemental work because this, is, ladies and gentlemen, this spotlight is very much in Murd's wheelhouse. A lot of what we're we'll talking about. Uh, he is going to be the master in the lead, especially when we get to the Adam Warlock character, which I know is a special favorite of yours, my friend. Ah, yes. Um, so over the years, I've noticed in the forums, a lot of listeners have called for uh, talk more about Marvel Cosmic, the history of Marvel Cosmic, do a spotlight on Marvel Cosmic. This is about as close as we're going to get to that. This spotlight's going to encompass not just the three characters we mentioned in our introduction of the episode, but other important supporting characters and sort of top-tier characters like Thanos, for example, who make a lot of appearances in, in the stories we're going to be addressing and are, and are vital, vital uh, narrative aspects of those, of those stories. And the other reason why I wanted to do this spotlight is that overseeing uh, unfold of the Marvel Cinematic Universe uh, and, and a small degree on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as well on television, it all comes from what we're going to be talking about this evening. And sort of the, the unifier among a lot of this material is going to be the great Jim Starlin. We're talking a lot about his work, probably more than any other creator in this, in this particular episode, because especially when it comes to Captain Marvel and Adam Warlock, these characters don't really exist in the way we know them without the work of, of Jim Starlin. So his, his contributions are vital and I hope I hope Marvel's taking care of him financially because the movies they're making, a lot of it doesn't happen without what Jim Starlin established uh, in these comics. Right down to the the ultimate big bad, the Avengers film is going to be Thanos, which is totally Starlin's creation. Mm-hmm. So we'll be addressing all of that uh, over the uh, next few hours. And I, for one, am quite anticipatory, to say the <laughs> least. Murd, I've been looking forward to discussing Adam Warlock with you for quite some time. <laughs> Uh, as I did the research, I found myself going cross-eyed as we got into sort of different versions of the character mm. and the time stream and everything else. Mm. So, well, I hope I don't disappoint. Yeah, yes. My friend, you never do it. I hope this is edif- I hope this is edifying for me as I hope it will be for uh, our listeners. Now, one of the points I should make out make for uh, our listeners they want to go back in time. We did in two thousand thirteen or early fourteen fourteen. When Jamie D was still with us, we, we, we recorded a two-part Fantastic Four in the Silver Age spotlight. 
and we st- we go into a lot into the, go a lot into Marvel Cosmic in those episodes because a lot of Marvel Cosmic starts, of course, with the Fantastic Four and the Silver Age. This episode we're doing uh, this evening sort of carries that ball further downfield, so to speak. So now we're going to get into uh, not only the Silver Surf, of course, a very important Silver Age uh, character, but also moving into the Bronze Age and how a new era of creators, people like Steve Englehart, Frank Brunner, uh, Jim Starlin, of course, Len Wein, Marv Wolfman, again, longtime fans should be getting palpitations. I go through, go through one iconic name after another. Uh, Alan Weiss. Uh, these are all creators who were fans in the Silver Age, and they bring that enthusiasm and passion when they become professionals in the Bronze Age. And they're going to take the other Lee, Kirby, and Ditko concepts and bring them to the, the next level, so to speak. And I think none more so than Starlin here, a lot of the stories uh, we're going to be talking about. So we're talking about the history of all three of these characters and their place in sort of the grand unfolding cosmic tapestry of uh, the Marvel Universe. And again, I, I want to emphasize a lot of what we're we'll talking about, it, it's the foundation of what you're seeing in the films right now. And a lot of that uh, goes back to Starlin. So I, I am extremely excited to embark on this interstellar journey uh, with two of my nearest and dearest comrades in arms here. Mm-hmm. Shane, thanks for that grin. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now, as always, we'll have to start with our initial reflections on these characters. And I should remind our audience before we go any further, this is not going to be like a a checklist-heavy spotlight. If you recall our Doctor Doom spotlight or our Black Panther spotlight, these are more overviews. We'll we'll address certain key story arcs and and issues, but we're not going to checklist every single appearance of these characters. That would be very daunting for all three of them at once. It amounts to 150 years worth of comics history between the three of them. I I just... That was sexy. That that was extremely (laughs) sexy. So... This is an overview. Um, we're still going to touch upon a lot of the key story arcs, as I mentioned, um, and, and moments for these characters. But again, you can always go online if you want to get a, an exhaustive checklist of, of all of their various appearances uh, and, and, and volumes and, and so forth. So, Shane, we'll start with you, brother. And this your um, thoughts on any of these characters, if any. I know a little bit about Silver Surfer, mm-hmm. more than the others. Um, and even that's more recent with... Uh, the last two iterations of the Silver Surfer comic. Beyond that, only when he would show up in big events or in Fantastic Four that I've read through the spotlight that we did um, on the Burn Run, something yes. like that. Um, beyond that, I know very little about any of them. Uh, even Adam Warlock, a tiny, tiny, itty bitty bit about. So I'm curious to see what I learn here and find out where to go to read some of the stuff that makes these characters what they are, to, especially to you, Murd. Um, just something I've never gotten into, so I'm excited to hear what's going on. Brother, I hope we can identify. Mm-hmm. Brother Murdo. Oh, well. <laughs> um, uh, well, I think of the usually when we get to this part of a, of a spotlight-type episode, you know, I usually just say, hey, I learned about them from uh, our friend Matt's uh, Marvel well, trading Universe cards. trading card yep, sets. Right, right. <laughs> um, that, that, that applies here, too, to a certain extent. But uh, the Silver Surfer is one exception. I, I'm pretty sure I learned of this character before... Uh, Matt uh, began his uh, conniving and his machinations oh, to, to, explain, sir. to uh, draw me into this uh, coven of uh, comics fandom. Uh, I knew <laughs> a couple of other kids in elementary school who were into comics. I, I think uh, 
Uh, one of them was named Justin Weatherholtz. He works as a tattoo artist somewhere in New York State now. Uh, but I think I can remember him bringing a few comics into school to show to a couple of our comics, to his comics reading friends. And uh, I saw one of them and I asked about it. And he said, oh, that's the Silver Surfer. And I can remember thinking that uh, a man coated in metal who rides around through outer space on a flying surfboard was one of the dumber ideas I had heard to date. <laughs> so the Silver Surfer needed to grow on me a little bit. But, uh, you know, having... In time, I, I came to appreciate the, the, the grandeur of the character a little more deeply. Um, now, just, he's a terrific visual, for one thing. You know, once you get past the fact that the idea of this very earthly artifact uh, thrown incongruously into the, uh, the, the context of outer <laughs> space adventure. Um, but, yeah, it's just so, so evocative of just pure movement in space. You know, it, it, it brings to mind... Uh, uh, certainly this didn't uh, come to my mind the first time I learned of the Silver Surfer in elementary school, but years later I learned of a sculpture uh, by a, a sculptor from the Futurist School, uh, Brancusi, I think his name was. Uh, it was called Bird in Space. It was just this streamlined piece of metal, roughly in the outline of a bird. And uh, that's Kirby's design of the Silver Surfer did just as much, I think, to evoke this this, this, this perfect notion of, of movement. It's one, of, it's one of the most compelling designs, in my opinion. Yeah, even in the, you know, a static medium like comics, much mm-hmm. like a static medium like sculpture, he's just, just, just pure aerodynamism. And so just on, on that level, he's, he's a real gift. But uh, there are other things to love about Norrin Rad as well, as we'll see. Uh, Adam Warlock, I did learn about through our friend Matt's uh, Marvel Universe trading cards. I, was, I took to him immediately. You know, the, his, his name, his hair color, his dour visage, and uh, his, <laughs> his constant sense of alienation. These were all things that I instantly related to. And as I got to know the character better, I liked him even more. You know, his, uh, the way the character was... Just such a, a victim of destiny, how he was buffeted by the cruel winds of fate, just uh, back and forth between different cosmic polarities of order and chaos, life and death, soul and soullessness, omnipotence and powerlessness. You know, just, he's just this synthetic being who's, because he's outside the natural order of things, he, he just has a, a destiny apart from those of most normal human beings. As I noticed in your notes, Chris, he and Thanos are a yin and yang of, yes. of sorts, in that both of them, uh, are kind of unstuck from the grand design and so move on to have uh, cosmic destinies that are truly unique in the uh, grand tapestry, as you say, of the Marvel Universe and its uh, cosmic panels in particular. Um, so I just, I, I've always enjoyed Adam Warlock's uh, ongoing journey through the, uh, the infinite uh, of the Marvel Universe, and especially his uh, encounters with the Infinity Gems which are one of my favorite concepts in the Marvel Universe as a whole. What even are we talking more, about here? Even more than Adam Warlock. I love the Infinity Gems. And Captain Marvel uh, had been safely dead for about ten years by the time I first started reading comics. And to this day, I must admit, I don't have a very strong handle on him as a character. I'm not much further along than Shane as far as my familiarity with Captain Marvel. Uh, I've read... I know I have a copy of Captain Marvel number 34, an important issue which oh, people yes, talk about talk later. About that, yeah. But I bought it because it was the first appearance of Nitro the Exploding Man, whom I cared about more than the deceased Captain Marvel at that time. And I've also, of course, read uh, the story of his death, uh, which I know is a very uh, we'll talk about. special uh, watershed moment for you, you, which you consider one of Starlin's magnum opi. Uh, I do indeed. So um, of the three, he's probably the one to which I uh, cleave the, the, the least strongly. So I guess I stand to learn the most uh, during that section of the episode tonight. Honored, brother. Okay. Take it away, Chris. You bet. Uh, now for me, so for the Silver Surfer, my first exposure to the character was again through, let me find it here. Oh, here we go. Son of Origins, which is 
I've talked about these books many times, the Fireside uh, collections of Stan Lee giving his version of the, the birth of the Marvel Universe in the 60s. And the Son of Origins, the, the sequel to Origin of Marvel Comics, contained uh, not the first appearance of Silver Surfer, but which, I, which in hindsight is very interesting, but his origin, Silver Surfer number 1, the 1968 issue done by Stan Lee, and not Jack Kirby, which is controversial, but mm. John Buscema. Now, John Buscema's art is breathtaking in that book, and we'll have examples of it on the screen shortly. That was my first exposure to the character, and I was immediately struck, as Murd mentioned, by the, the way the surfer moved through space, just the sheer compelling visual of this silvery, like, glazed being on a surfboard. But again, the aerodynamism, the word used, was perfect there, Murd. And that captivated me as a kid. And then the philosophical musings of the surfer, as he talked about alienation and loneliness and, you know, the insanity of, of mankind. And, you know, Lee, Lee clearly getting out his views on humanity and, and, and where we're headed and where we've been and so forth. That, that drew me in, you know, especially as you get become a teen, like the alienation, the isolation uh, that character felt. And I've, I've been reading The Silver Surfer ever since. I read most of the uh, Volume 3 of the 1980s, 1990s series, which we'll talk about. Uh, I've read, you know, pretty much all of his Silver and Bronze Age appearances. Uh, I lost track of the character a little bit in the 2000s. They mm. had him in different miniseries. So did Marvel. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> Don't feel too bad. Uh, and, of course, I am reveling, as I think we all are, in what I think is the already classic Dan Slott and uh, Mike Allred series, which is just... Uh, exactly. You can't, you can't say anything else but that. Uh, as far as uh, Captain Marvell, I'll hold up to the screen again. This is my weather-beaten copy of Captain Marvel number 50 uh, from his eponymous series, Marvel's Spaceborn Superhero. And... This comic comes from my version of the Diefenbach collection, where I said this before. When I was a kid in the late 70s, my cousins refused older than me. I've mentioned this in the air before. They gave me a pile of Bronze Age comics when they were a little bit younger, so they're from the early to mid-70s. And among them was Captain Marvel number 50. I never heard of Captain Marvel before. I'd heard of the Shazam character. Hmm. I didn't know Marvel had a character named Captain Marvel. I, was, this is, I used to get in these books in the late 70s, a little kid. And I love the costume. The Avengers are in it. So that was automatically drew me in. Uh, I, was, I was intrigued by the fact that he was sharing, like, uh, almost a buy with Rick Jones and the Negative Zone, which we'll talk about all that in a moment. And the Super Adapter was a compelling uh, adversary in that story. And I was, I was just taken by the character. And then in 1982, Marvel graphic novel number one came out the death of Captain Marvel. And I said, oh, this is the guy I read in Captain Marvel 50. My parents bought it for me, not the first printing, but they, they printed it multiple times very quickly because it was, it was a big seller. And I'd never read a story where a superhero died in, in, such, in such a mundane fashion. He dies of cancer. And to this day, from when I read it as a young kid, and, and now I just read it again as an adult just recently, just to refresh... Few comic stories move me the way that story does because it tackles death, but not in a, you know, slam bang, you know, going down fighting against a million foes or, you know, stopping a bomb or something dramatic like that. He got cancer, he tried to beat it, he couldn't, and he died. And 
Starlin takes the story through that experience, and we'll, I'll talk more about the background that we get there, and how it affects the people around him, Star Fox, Mentor, the other Marvel heroes who come to pay their respects, even his adversaries. Uh, I think it's one of the greatest pieces of work in Starlin's career. And uh, I've, for that story alone, I love the character, and I've read a lot of his other appearances o- over the years. I've read The Avengers of His Son, Janice Vell. Uh, I've read some of the Carol Danvers stuff. So the Captain Marvel character has, has quite a legacy. Again, we'll be focusing only on Marvel here, just for the sake of time. Um, Carol Danvers deserves her own episode, which we'll put in the queue, uh, essentially. But this, this is very much a legacy character. And, and even though his, his publishing run wasn't that successful compared to other Marvel properties, uh, what happens in his story is probably because of Starlin basically established much of Marvel's cosmic continuity. So that deserves its, its, its due. And then finally, Adam Warlock is the character I know the least about. I knew of him. I, knew, I know his place, his role in the Marvel Universe. I know he's another, another character that Starlin really put a stamp on. We should mention, Starlin did not create Captain Marvel or Adam Warlock. We'll talk about who did, because they should get their due as well. But Starlin defined these characters. Mm-hmm. So what I did with Murd was that over the past few weeks, I've been reading Adam Warlock. I read all the Starlin stuff, which I'd never read before. Beyond, yep. There you go. All Be- in one package right here. Yep, Beyond oh, wow. Snippets. Huh. And I'm looking forward to discussing, <laughs> when we get to that part of the episode, just how amazing I think those comics are and just have, have in so many ways, they so epitomize the time in which they were written and drawn. So I didn't realize all of Starlin's stuff fit in one volume for that character. Well, all the stuff from the Bronze Age. Yeah, the anyway. Bronze Age. Yeah, yeah, then he came back to it, of course, in the, in the 90s. Uh, um, so Adam Warlock... Very important sort of linchpin character of Marvel's cosmic continuity. We should mention the Guardians of the Galaxy film. When they go to the collector's lair, you see the cocoon very briefly, um, which is his regenerative cocoon. Mm. So I'm hoping we're going to see Adam Warlock uh, at some point in in Marvel's cosmic uh, film continuity. You and me both, brother. I mean, you guys both saw the Guardians of the Galaxy trailer, right? Oh, uh, see uh, I've seen a Guardians okay, of the Galaxy Okay, so we're going to see Mantis. They showed her. I right? did not see that Guardians yep. of the oh, Galaxy yep. trailer. you got to watch it, Murray. So good. Yeah, so I wouldn't be surprised if Warlock is going to make an appearance. He should, because so much of what they're talking about and showing us, he's such an important part of that. So those are my initial reflections. Any other comments before we kind of plunge in here? Nope. Plunge. Dive, oh. dive. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to do each character in turn. Uh, we're going to start with the Silver Surfer. Now, he first appears in FF48, the legendary The Galactus Trilogy. Now, we talked about this trilogy at, at some length in, again, our Fantastic Four spotlight. So I, I'm going to do the pantaloons roll. I, just, I, I don't forget the episode numbers, so I failed in that sense. Pants would remember them. But if you go back into our archives, definitely check out those FF uh, Silver Age spotlights because... We touch upon a lot of a lot of the early Marvel cosmic history in those. Now, the creators of Silver Surfer, and, and actually, uh, Shane, could you pull up the uh, Kirby Silver Surfer Galactus image, please? While he's doing that, I can tell everyone that please. it's episodes fourteen sixty one and fourteen sixty two. Those are the, the, that's the two part spotlight on the Fantastic Four: The Silver Age. A halcyon day because we recorded those with Jamie D. Mm. It was you, me, and him. I don't think Shane was available that so. day. In one day. It was a kind of a long day. But <laughs> it's a cherished memory. Now, 
the creators of the character, I have to be specific because, again, Lee, Kirby, Marvel Method, there's always controversy. Lee himself has, has said in many interviews, both verbally and written, Kirby handed him the pages for the Galactus trilogy, and Lee said, oh, I saw this guy on a surfboard. And Kirby said, well, Galactus, you know, he would need a herald to sort of lead him to these planets right. he wants to consume. If Galactus is a godlike figure. He yes. needs an angel. Exactly. And I'll read a quote where Kirby addresses that just shortly. And so the visual, the concept, it's all Jack Kirby. Stanley did not come up with the concept visually of the Silver Surfer at all. It's totally Kirby. And Lee's contribution is sort of the persona of the lonely philosophical wanderer, you know, both in, in Earth and then throughout the cosmos, musing on the state of things, his lot in life, and the state of humanity, uh, and so forth. That's all Stanley, which we'll get to uh, shortly. So the, so the two men both put their stamp on the character. Uh, I have to wonder if Kirby intended the surfer to be portrayed the way Lee would ultimately portray him. Not at all. Yeah, I mean, probably not. I mean, that was kind of a sticking point, actually. Yeah. It's the fact that, uh, well, I guess when we get to Silver Surfer number one. Yes. I'll say more about that. So, once again, it's the Marvel method. Just remind people. Leading at the time as art director, editor in chief, and he said, "All right, I want an issue with such and such villain, and go for it." The artists would do the whole; they plot the whole thing out based on whatever Lee told them, hand him back the pages. He'd write in the dialogue and the captions. So Kirby handed him a, a page with the Silver Surfer on it, and then they got the ball rolling. Now, what about the Surfer's origin? Uh, so the Surfer, his real name, of course, is Norrin Rad. And he is a denizen of the planet Zenla. I love that name. <laughs> and Zenla, when we were introduced to it in Silver Surfer number one in 1968, which is not his first appearance, it's the, the, when he gets his phone book. Uh, Zenla is a highly sophisticated, technologically advanced utopia. They, they've passed through the age of war, of space exploration. The people there live in sort of this contented utopia where every need is met and people just pursue their pleasures and and that's that's their life they, they've gotten rid of they don't have a military they, they, they don't have fighting wars nothing and Norrin, Ra Norrin Rad is someone who's very taken with the history of Zen La when it was a, when it was a time of exploration of war of, con of conflict where you know the Zen Lavians were pitting themselves against various challenges and he yearns to return to that time, and in, in Silver Surfer, when they show him going to a museum where you can put on like a sort of, sort of mental projection device, you can you can live the history of Zen Law like you're there experiencing it. And he's he's kind of stagnant and feeling stifled by this world where every need and desire is met. And he's deeply in love with Shalabal, who is his the love of his life on Zen Zen Law, and she's content there, but he's not. He's restless. And they read kind of that his parents were also, especially his mother, felt stifled by the world of Zen Lan. In fact, they both commit suicide. That's a darker aspect of the character's history they bring in much later on. They retcon that. And as many people know, Galactus, the world devourer, approaches Zen La. And as we know, Galactus is, well, he was a man before the Big Bang. He came from the planet Ta, I believe. Exactly. One of the last explorers from that dying civilization. Mm -hmm. In the universe that existed before the Marvel Universe. Yep. And notice how we said universe, just like, like I got a chill. So, and. Ooh, universe. Indeed. 
infinity. So Galactus is transformed by the Big Bang into this, not a man, a cosmic entity who, almost like a shark, has to constantly move and consume to survive. And Galactus, he's not good, he's not evil, he's... It, I shouldn't say he, it is Galactus. And Galactus must feed. And Zenla was the next planet in his sights, and he's approaching it to set up his world-devouring mechanism to consume the energy of the planet. And Oren Rad takes one of the last spacecraft Zenla has. He flies up to meet Galactus's world ship, as it's called. And he, and he, he makes, basically makes a pact. I will become your herald to help you find other planets to consume in return, spare Zenla. And this isn't just him being selfless. There's something self-serving about this because he's hoping to get that life of adventure and excitement he's long craved. Now he's going to have that opportunity. And, of course, Galactus transforms him. And, uh, Shane, if you could go to the image entitled Genesis. This is a classic Buscema image, John Buscema, as the Silver Surfer emerges from the energy-emanating palm of Galactus in the galactic glaze that has transformed him mm. uh, into the surfer. And then we, we have to assume, I, I'm assuming it's for centuries, right? The surfer then travels throughout the cosmos finding worlds for Galactus to feed. How is Shalabal still alive? Are Zenlavians just extremely long-lived? From what I've read, they're long-lived. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, oh, one detail please, also please, that we, we need please. to inject in here. Uh, Galactus... Uh, Puts one over on the surfer a bit because, uh, or on Norrin Rad, I should say, because he wipes away, well done, or suppresses there, at least, uh, yeah, the surfer's memories of having been Norrin Rad, his memories of his origins on the planet Zenla, so that he's able to serve Galactus uh, that much more loyally and uh, with uh, the lack of moral compunction that he would once have possessed as a mortal human being. Outstanding, and that give me to the punch. Well done, and that aspect of the narrative plays a key role in the Fantastic Four Galactus trilogy, which we'll talk about uh, in just a moment. Now, so the Surfer tries to lead Galactus to a world that is not life, but as Murd mentioned, Galactus will, will uh, suppress the Surfer's, let's call it his humanity, his sense of morality, his memories, and he becomes sort of just this unthinking automaton who just guides Galactus to planets to consume. And ultimately... We're going to pick up the story now in Fantastic Four, 40 to 50, the classic Galactus trilogy, where the surfer leads Galactus to Earth. And I, I can't emphasize enough, if you have not read the Galactus trilogy, FF 40 to 50, if you're a Marvel fan, a fan of Marvel Cosmic, or just classic comics that are so key in terms of history, you've got to read that story. Some, the, the, the birth of Marvel Cosmic, a lot of it is with this, this, these issues. And when they did the Marvel's miniseries in the 1990s, one of the few bright spots for me as a Marvel lover in the 1990s, uh, the classic Busick, Alex Ross. Alex Ross's rendering of the surfer as he approaches Earth as the herald of Galactus. And I still remember that image. I should have, I should have captured it here. I didn't. Where it's a full-page splash of, of the surfer rendered by Ross coming through the sort of meteor shower the watchers created to try to obscure Galactus' vision of the Earth. And all Busek has, the only caption is, Judgment Day. And the surfer is the angel of death, essentially, coming to bring this, quote, God's wrath uh, to earth. Let me read a quote from Kirby on his take on the surfer. 
Quote, the Silver Surfer was an afterthought. When I did Galactus, I suddenly realized he was God, and I had done something biblical there. I felt that somehow God in connection with a kind of fallen angel type would be great. The Silver Surfer is, of course, the fallen angel. And you really get that impression in the Galactus trilogy. And you guys, have you guys both read the Galactus trilogy? I have not. I'm not sure I have either. It's one of those famous stories that I've read so much about, I feel like uh, actually reading the story itself would almost be gilding the lily. <laughs> Fantastic, Mert. <laughs> Brothers, I highly recommend that you... It, you can read it. It's three issues. It's not, it's not long. I highly recommend it because so much of where Marvel goes in terms of its cosmic history... I mean, the, the FF and the Silver Age in general, a lot of it starts there, but especially in those three issues... They're classics, and I can't recommend them enough, especially we get to see Johnny Storm ranting about, we're all just ants, because he goes into Galactus's world ship, and mm-hmm. he can't sense over, overwhelmed by see, what he's, he's experiencing. I've so. seen that panel. I've, <laughs> I've seen and or read descriptions of so many classic scenes from that story. Again, I, I feel like I've already read it, Indeed. even though I haven't. Hmm. Now, actually, uh, Shane, if you could go to the, uh, the image that says, uh, reflecting on Zen Law. Look, look, look at the psychedelia of this image. Oh, this is beautiful John Buscema artwork. Um, thank you, my friend. Mm-hmm. And if we're going to talk about the surfer, you got to talk a little bit about how he feels about his home world once his memory of it is restored, as Bird mentioned. I'll read here. This is classically hyperbole. How much longer before my eyes may once again behold the wonders of the ever-changing cosmos? How much longer before my exile ends, and I may stand once more upon the land that gave me birth? Even now I can recall those early days, those youthful years upon the planet Zenla. And you could then go, Shane, to the Shalabal image. I appreciate it. Sure. Uh, as we talk about the Silver Surfer, so much of the character's nobility and grandeur and, and sort of that cosmic scope is grounded in the fact that he is a, one of the loneliest beings in the Marvel Universe. Wrenched away, granted by his own choice, from his home world, in many ways from his own sense of humanity. And a lot of the Silver stories, him, him, him clawing back to that sense of self and rediscovering the man beneath the galactic glaze, essentially. Now, here we see an image of Shalaba. Again, this is classic John Buscema artwork. Uh, from the first volume one of the Silver Surfer series. Shalabal, my own true beloved. I have to mention, Virgil, appreciate this. Joe Satriani, you know the guitar player? Uh, no, mm-hmm. I don't. All right. Shane, he was very big in the 1980s, if you recall. He's a big Silver Surfer fan. He did two albums yep. which have Silver Surfer and Galactus artwork. And uh, one of the albums, I think, is, is called Surfing the Alien, if I remember correctly. That sounds right. And... There's a song on one of the albums, not the, I think it's on the other album, not the Surf the Alien one, where it's the, t- the song is Back to Shalabal. So I think I've heard about this. Yeah, this is one of those rare Silver Surfer multimedia, I mean, other media moments. And, and, and not even comic book related, completely no. <laughs> all on its own. Yep. And, uh, you know, just the Silver Surfer, I found that people love the Silver Surfer, really love the Silver Surfer. Like, he really has a strong following among... <laughs> 
you know, certain fans. And the people who don't like him really don't like him because Matt was one of those when we were uh, young teenagers. Well, if <laughs> he, he identified him as like his least favorite Marvel character, actually. Well, because, and we're going to get into this, so much of the character is rooted in a lot of soliloquies, <clears throat> especially when Lee's handling the character and a lot of ruminating about his place in the universe. And if you're, if you're looking for slam-bang action... You're not always going to get that in, in a Silver Surfer comic. So, not always, yeah. but sometimes. Oh, sometimes, hell yeah. Now, as you know, in the, in the Galactus trilogy, going back to our origin narrative, the Surfer comes upon Alicia Masters, the blind sculptress who was the beloved of the thing, Benjamin J. Grimm, and he's taken with her, and her, her profound sense of humanity, her goodness, awakens within him in what Galactus had suppressed his own sense of humanity. And he turns against his master to defend the Earth against the hunger of Galactus. And the FF, because they gain the ultimate nullifier, because Uatu the Watcher intervenes to save the Earth, they drive Galactus off, but Galactus to punish his formal herald. And we get a sense throughout the years that Galactus actually has affection for the Silver Surfer, probably more so than many of his other heralds. It's almost, and he almost seems like he he's actually feels wounded by the Surfer betraying him. He doesn't kill the surfer. He doesn't take away his power cosmic. But he banishes the surfer to Earth and to the skywriter of the spaceways, as he's called. He creates a barrier the surfer cannot penetrate. So he's, he's doomed to basically remain in the Earth's atmosphere and to never be able to leave it. And Shane, if you could go to the image of uh, FF55, please. I'm going to read that. I'm uh, I'm sorry. Uh, FF53, FF53 art. I'm going to read again. This is this is look at this is black one. Look at look at the stunning Kirby art. The lower panel, as the surfer leaps off of uh, I think it's Mount Everest, and just that's classic Kirby. The the hands in the foreground moving towards you. No one could better create a sense of dynamic movement in a panel than the king. And you see that never better example than the Silver Surfer. I'm going to read now. This is classic. The Surfer waxing rhapsodic about his lot. <laughs> I, who have crested the currents of space, who have dodged the meteor swarms and outdistanced the fastest comets, I must resign myself to this prison which men call Earth, because I dared give up the freedom of the universe to aid the hapless universe. But I must have no regrets. Whatever destiny awaits me, I have to be true to my trust, though I am a strange in a world I never made. <laughs> Lee really took the surfer in that direction where he acted as sort of a spokesperson for what we assume was Stanley's view of humanity and, and the, both the potential of humanity and the downfall uh, of humanity. Now, once the surfer turns against Galactus from the Silver Age into the Bronze Age, he is traveling around Earth. He forms an ally, Lance of the FF. He helps them many times. He helps form the Defenders, uh, that classic Marvel superhero team, and many adventures. And, of course, Galactus will eventually lift the barrier, and the Surfer will be able to penetrate, and then his adventures will be taken back out into the wider cosmos. And he's been there uh, ever since. Any questions or comments before we move on, gentlemen? Uh, not at this moment. All right. Now, t touch a bit upon the powers of the Surfer. When we read a Surfer Surfer comic, we often hear about the power cosmic. And when the Galactus created the Surfer Surfer, he transformed Norrin Rad into the Surfer. Uh, 
I can't find this, this phrase in, in the internet, galactic glaze. It sounds like, like a hostess coding. But anyway, <laughs> he... <clears throat> Norrin Rad is, Rad is reborn into this being who is covered in this silver glaze because of the comics code of the time. That kind of gave him the outline of a pair of briefs hmm. uh, in, in his midsection area. But now they don't even show that. He's just, he's just a fully gla- silverly glazed being. Mm-hmm. Just a big lump of liquid metal in the shape of a human being. Well put, sir. And this galactic glaze allows him to operate in the vacuum of space. Uh, and it makes him virtually indestructible. And one has to assume immortal uh, as well, essentially. And the Silver Surfer is endowed with some of the power of Galactus itself. So he is one of the most powerful beings in the Marvel cosmos, uh, essentially. He can absorb, manipulate, and discharge energy from across the electromagnetic spectrum. We've seen many examples of that in the stories. He can project force fields. He can phase through solid matter. He can travel across time and through dimensions. He can heal wounds. He can rearrange matter. I mean, this this is a heavy hitter uh, in the Marvel Universe, a cosmic-level being, uh, essentially. And he has, of course, cosmic senses. I often remember reading stories where he could could track a mode of dust across the Mm -hmm. cosmos. Uh, He can see, his vision can see across a light year. Uh, He can detect, track, and discern all forms of energy. Uh, he, does, he doesn't have to breathe or eat. His galactic glaze takes care of all of his bodily functions, uh, so to speak. He is endowed with massive strength if he needs it. He's fought the Hulk, Thor, the Thing, Thanos, toe-to-toe, and lived to tell the tale. This is a very powerful being. And, of course, what would the surfer be without his board? <laughs> to me, my board! Now, of course, if you're if you're if anybody who's fans of the All Red Slot series, they've they've kind of turned that classic uh, exclamation on its head, and the surfer's traveling companion, the wonderful Dawn Greenwood, now calls the board to me, as in T O O M I E, mistaking the phrase "to me, my board" yeah. for the surfer calling his board by name, "to yep. me, my board." And uh, the board is linked to the surfer in mind and body. They are essentially one again, created by Galactus. The board is essentially indestructible. Mm-hmm. Just a solid slunk of uh, galactic glaze. Yep, and because it consists of that glaze, and the board follows the surface every command. Now, in in the current surf, surf, surfer series, they've established that the board is was well, is one with the surfer. It also seems to have a personality of its own as well, which I thought is an interesting twist on the concept of the surfer's board. And of course, the board. Is the sky rider of the spaceways, as they call the surfer. He can, he can traverse across the cosmos on it. It can attain speeds of up to Mach 10 in Earth's atmosphere, uh, the speed of light in space, and it can exceed the speed of light in hyperspace, from what I, from my research. So this is a bad mofo, Silver Surfer's <laughs> board. I mean, this is one of the most powerful sort of pieces of paraphernalia in the Marvel Universe. Um, so... Again, we, we talked about it, you mentioned this in the introduction. What a striking visual the Silver Surfer on his board is. What do you guys think of just the, the concept that this man on the surfboard skirting the space, skating the spaceways, so to speak? Well, you know, as, as a young kid reading comics, I thought it was kind of silly. Uh, just first impression, <laughs> it was kind of goofy and silly and a little bit beyond what I cared to suspend disbelief for. But reading through more Marvel comics as I got into comics and grew up a little bit 
Um, still not one of my favorite characters, but I definitely understood and respected the power they gave him that others either feared or really tried to trust him with because of what they needed him for when big events happened or something. Um, and then learning that he was a herald of Galactus and all that. Just interesting. Wait a minute, Shane. Galactus. Go ahead. <laughs> interesting stuff. Um, not somebody that I followed. I would try to read Silver Surfer comics, and I liked him in small bits, not following a whole story just himself um, until the more recent ones where they're just a hoot and a half of fun. Um, but, yeah, that's that's what I always thought of Silver Surfer. Mm. At first, just goofy and silly. Mm. Yeah. Also my initial reaction, Shane, yeah. but as I said before, once you get past the initial absurd incongruity of uh, surfboard in outer space, it's a breathtaking visual. Yeah. And some of that came from seeing those albums in stores that you mentioned, mm. because I'm like, well, what's Silver Surfer doing on a CD cover? Huh. Maybe better look at that. That's a good point. Yeah. And Shane, you call up FF55. Sure. There's just this. When we talk about the di- the dynamism of the Kirby Surfer, this is one of my all-time favorite uh, Fantastic Four Silver Age stories. And in fact, I was first introduced to the Surfer. I should actually I misspoke. Not Son of Origins. When I got Origin of Marvel Comics, I got before Son of Origins. The backup that was there were two stories for each uh, character or characters in that book, and the second one was FF fifty five. And I was so taken with the imagery of this being fighting the thing and how powerful he was and just how awesome the the Kirby visuals of the character, the sheer power of the surfer. And uh this this is a, an issue I especially cherish. Uh and it is that, that classic shot of, of the surfer shooting one of his force bolts to the thing and just almost like a ballet dancer on his board, just the way he moves so effortlessly. Uh and the, the board just is one with him. It, it, such beautiful, breathtaking Kirby art. Now, I want to read a quote from Lee on his take on the surfer. Studying the illust- this is quote, studying the illustration, seeing the way Jack had drawn him, I found a certain nobility in his demeanor, an almost spiritual quality in his aspect and his bearing. In determining what his speech pattern would be, I began to imagine the way that a space-born apostle would speak. There seemed something biblically pure about our silver surfer, something totally selfless and magnificently innocent. I was tempted to imbue him with a spirit of almost religious purity. I saw him as someone who would graphically represent all the best, the most unselfish qualities of intelligent life. Now again, whether or not this was Kirby's intention with the character, probably not. But if you follow Lee's history with Marvel, he seems to have such a soft spot for the character. He wrote the Silver Surfer any chance he could get. Uh, We'll talk about several stories what Lee will write those those stories, not just in FF, but in the Surfer's own books as well. He just he just took to the character, and he, he certainly gives the character what like, some people love it, some people hate it. This almost Christ-like, you know, this Messiah come to Earth who people don't seem to appreciate, and how he, he views this as the potential we should have, but he also mourns what what we are. And Shane, if you could call us an example of this of the classic Lee hyperbole. If you call up what's called Surfer Soliloquy, please. Surfer Soliloquy. And this is classic Lee. I'll read. And this is from the, the Lee Buscema Silver Age Volume 1 series. 
I can endure no more. I can stuff all the hostile forces of nature, the deadly barbs of a foe's attack, even the gnawing anger of eternal loneliness without end. And he's holding his hands up, <coughs> dramatically warding off the evil spirit of mankind. But I cannot bear the torturous, incomprehensible assault of human badness. I cannot be imprisoned in a world without reason. <laughs> Classically hyperbole. Human badness. Yes. It's this grand, bombastic, you know... Oh, you know how we do like our bombast yes, out here. <laughs> philosophical hyperbole. And then Lee definitely was drawn to the character and used him as that as a vehicle to just him to hold forth on the state of humanity. Now, what do you guys think of that aspect of the surfer's persona? Because that, that's, that's been with him more or less ever since to some degree. I am one of those who's in favor of it. Me too. What do you think, Shane? Yeah. Who likes to be imprisoned? I mean, he he's never a fan of being one of Galactus's heralds, but it is what it is. And when he can get away from it, he gets away from it. Yep. But every time he thinks he's out, they pull him back <laughs> in. Yeah. yeah. Now, of course, it depends on the writer. Sometimes it's handled very skillfully and, and pointly. Other times it's very ham-handed. Mm-hmm. Um, some people love what Lee did with the surfer. Other people, especially Kirby fans, despise it. And we'll talk about it in a moment how the controversies around the first Silver Surfer uh, eponymous title. Now, in the Silver Surfer Surfer's world, we have a lot of great supporting characters. You mentioned Galactus, who, of course, is he's the core of everything. He created the Silver Surfer, that entity. So he's so much an important part of the Surfer's history. Uh, the Fantastic Four are recurring allies of the Surfer ever since he appeared in FF48. Alicia Masters, so the surfer, one could argue is he falls in love with her, um, and she becomes a supporting character in his own book for a period of time and a companion to him hmm. uh, as well. Of course, Shalabala first appears in Silver Surfer number 1 from 1968. Uh, they retcon in the Surfer's Own series his mother, Elmore, and father, Jortran, who both commit suicide uh, before Galactus comes to Zenla, apparently because they... In different ways, they're feeling stifled by how stagnant that society has become. We'll talk a bit about Mephisto, who is, well, some might argue, is the surfer's arch foe. He first appears in Silver Surfer number three uh, from the, the, the 60s. Uh, Nova, who we mentioned in our FF Burn spotlight, Frankie Ray, becomes a later herald of Galactus. Character I often find a bit creepy. We've talked about that before. Mm. Uh, of course, Thanos will play a role in the surface history. And, of course, Dawn Greenwood, his, com- his Doctor Who-like companion in the current uh, delightful series we're all enjoying. So notable appearances in the story arcs I wanted to mention for our, our listeners that want to you know, hunt some of this stuff down. Again, FF40 through 50, the Galactus Trilogy, is mandatory reading for anyone interested in Marvel's cosmic history and the Fantastic Four and the Surfer start there. I mentioned FF55, When Strikes the Silver Surfer, classic thing, Surfer Donnybrook, thrilling uh, Kirby Sinnott art. This, again, FF55 is what many people consider, consider the peak of the Lee Kirby FF run. This is where you've got, this period is where you have the, the Galactus Trilogy, the Black Panther, the Inhumans, Silver Surfer. It's, it's great stuff, ladies and gentlemen. Highest recommend. If you want the core of... of Marvel Cosmic, where it all starts, you got to read that error. FF57, enter Dr. Doom. This is where Doom uh, famously 
dupes the surfer. He takes advantage of the surfer's nobility, his innocence, and Doom passes himself off as a noble, uh, benevolent monarch of Latveria. And he tricks the surfer and siphons off some of his power cosmic. And if you recall the, the second Fantastic Four film, Rise of the Silver Surfer, mm -hmm. they basically based it in part on that storyline uh, to some degree. We'll talk more about that, that, that at the end of the Silver Surfer part of our segment of our episode here. Now, an interjection ahead, please, before please, please, I know please. I, I'm looking at your notes here. We're going to the Silver Surfer number one first, but I'm going to interject please, one thing. Please. Uh, the first true Silver Surfer solo story, where he didn't have to share the marquee with any other hero character, was a backup story in Fantastic Four Annual number five. Damn, I know I could count on him. Indeed. Yes, it's called Where Soars the Silver Surfer. Not, uh, not too different from uh, When Strikes the Silver Surfer. And it's the Silver Surfer uh, uh, encountering Quasimodo, uh, the mad thinker's old computer, who's an artificial intelligence who's housed in this misshapen, uh, immobile housing. The Silver Surfer does him a kindness and resh reshapes matter, gives him a roughly humanoid body, still pretty badly misshapen, and Quasimodo thanks him by going on a destructive rampage. So the Surfer learns kind of an <laughs> of course. important lesson about the uh, the dangers of benevolence when dealing with humans and their creations. You know, no good deed goes unpunished. That's a, I'm glad you brought that up, Murray, because part of the sur Surfer's sort of character arc is him trying to come to grips with the way human beings act. And how irrationally often finds them, and how difficult it is for them to navigate, you know, our, our culture and so forth. And that's just, that's an intrinsic part of the character, as especially established uh, by Lee. Now, Shay, if you could call up the Buscema Surfer image, please. Now, in 1968, Marvel breaks free. We mentioned we've mentioned this many times before from the. Uh, suffocating distribution deal they had with DC. They remember they're under the independent news circulation deal. They only print eight titles a month. That's crazy. Um, and by 68, they'd broken free from that. They had, they had their own a better uh, distribution deal. I want to say Curtis circulation. And they started to give a lot of characters who were kind of stuck in the house books like Tales to Suspense, Tales to Astonish, Journey of Mystery, uh, so forth. During the mystery, they gave all these characters their own books. And the Silver Surfer got his own book. Lee loved the character. He's made that very plain in, in a lot of his interviews and, and writings. And in 1968, Silver Surfer 1 is published now. Lee was so excited about the book, he was able to convince his publisher, Martin Goodman, to really spring for a, a larger comic. And this is in 68. And I want to say it was, yes, it was 25-cent cover price when books were still 12 cents, more pages. And for reasons I couldn't really discern, I mean, what I did, re what I did read felt like propaganda to me, or let's say selective memory. Kirby was not given the task to draw the book. Now, the reason I, I read was from Lee was, well, he was too busy with the things, and maybe that's true. Um, but one reading through the lines, and this is this is this is educated guesswork based on different histories I've read, where people are more knowledgeable about this than I am. That may have also further led to some resentment, and there's already a lot of other resentment that Kirby felt from the the very unflattering uh, 1966 uh, New York Health Tribune interview. We've talked about uh, other factors, compensation, and so forth, um, and. 
Lee gave it to John Buscema. Now, John Buscema, I think, is one of the great masters of the Silver, Silver Age, and well into the 1980s and 90s, when his Conan work, Avengers, master artist. And I think a Silver Surfer is breathtaking. But it wasn't Kirby. And what do you guys think of, of Buscema versus Kirby? Do you have a preference, or do you, do you like both uh, renderings? Honestly, I can't even form an image of what Buscema, John Buscema's style looks like in You can head, look at so. the image that... Well, yeah, I, I yeah, saw that saw image it. earlier when Pants was loading it onto the computer. Yeah. So I, and I, I knew, look, he, Pants actually thought it was a Kirby image, and I thought, no, nah, probably isn't. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I probably would say I prefer Kirby. Why is that? Uh, just because, once again, I, I don't really know what Buscema's art Fair looks enough. like. I saw that image, and it was very much in Kirby's style, which is why you know, Pants uh, thought, oh, that's a whole lot of Kirby right there. <laughs> but, yeah, so probably, I, I would probably say Kirby. Well, we have to remember that Lee always made a point of every, whenever artists came into the bullpen, he said, all right, I want you not to, to copy Kirby, but to draw like him, that dynamic mm. uh, sense of dynamism. Try to and, tap yeah. into the same source yeah. of energy. The, the energy, <laughs> sure. exactly. Uh, you know, the drama and, and, and the pacing and, and the action. Uh, and some people could do that. Other people like Don Heck, as you mentioned, really struggled with that. I think Buscema just took it and ran with it and did his own thing with it. I mean, Buscema, I mean, when I look at John Buscema's work, and I'm a huge fan of it, it's almost like I, I'm looking at paintings from, like, the, the, the Italian Renaissance. Like, he has that mastery of form and anatomy. I just think he's a breathtaking artist. And regardless of what you think of the Lee versus Kirby controversies, I love this Silver Surfer series from the late 60s. It didn't run that long. I want to say it was only 18 issues. Uh, mm-hmm. But... Mer- uh, Shane, if, thank you, Mert. Shane, if you could bring up Silver Surfer 3, that image. Um, classic cover. This is also the introduction of Mephisto, Mephisto excuse me. The power and the prize. <laughs> and, Mert, could you explain to the audience Mephisto's place in the Marvel Universe? Uh, he is their uh, go-to Satan figure. Yeah. And he is, he is in, in effect, the devil. Uh, he is an extra-dimensional being who rules this infernal realm, and he is able to uh, get his mitts on the uh, life energy of deceased human beings, usually by bartering with them for the right to take it into his realm, and he gains power from amassing all of these human life forces or souls in his realm. So he's not a devil in the religious sense, but uh, in pretty much every other sense. He's a science fiction Satan. Well, an apt description, brother. Science fiction Satan. I like that. And Shane, let me bring up the Mephisto image, please. Uh, as Murd said, Mephisto craves souls, and he becomes especially obsessed with the surfer and the surfer's nobility and goodness. And a lot of stories from Silver Surfer 3 onward, he's trying to corrupt the surfer, trying to tempt him. And Silver Surfer 3, which I think is a classic, and, and that's in the Bring on the Bad Guys Fireside Edition, uh, which is another one of my piece of early education as, mm. as, as a, a Marvelite when I was a kid, where they bring in Mephisto. They show his introduction in that, in that collection. Um, but if you look at the Mephisto image, which Shane is, again, it's beautiful Buscema art, him you know, on, his, on his throne, cast in shadow, while man remains an educated savage, my ranks of the damned are swelled to overflowing. Fantastic. But it, basically, you see where Lee probably saw the surfer as like this Christ-like figure, and Mephisto is Satan trying to tempt him. And Silver Surfer 3 tempts him with jewels and an empire and the image of Shalabal, and the surfer resists everything. 
you know, is a sense of nobility. In fact, I'll read a uh, uh, classic panel here. Bring on the bad guys. Within my brain, his accursed purity did pain me like a canker. <laughs> but now I play my master card. Even you have no defense against the weapon men call love. Canker. Now that, that comes straight from John Donne. Does it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's well, not necessarily Paradise Lost, but it was a, a, a term that Donne used in some of his poetry. So fitting that uh, Lee put it in Mephisto's mouth there. Once again, Professor Murdo's office hours will be posted, mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> right under Professor Ripley's. The Doctor is real in. <laughs> now, uh, Shea, call Silver Surfer th- uh, 4 image, please. This is one of, probably one of the most famous, not, definitely one of the, I don't want to say the most, not the most famous, but it's, it's definitely a, a well-known cover. Surfer versus Thor is the image, I'm sorry. Okay. From this Lee Buscema uh, series and from the Silver Age in general, uh, this is sort of like a, a recolored, t- looks like a recolored touched image of that cover. It is just breathtaking John Buscema artwork, and it just gives you an idea of sort of the grand cosmic spectacle they're really striving for in this series. And when, that, when, you, have a, when you have an artist like uh, Buscema, you can achieve that. And I, I, can't, I can't emphasize the beauty of his work. Uh, and no one may take anything away from Kirby. He created the visual of the character. I love Kirby's surfer just as much. But Buscema's surfer, the nobility he's shooting for, the grand sort of operatic cosmic scale. It's here. Marvel did an omnibus, I don't know if it's still in print, of the entire Lee Buscema Silver Surfer series. If it's still around, get it, if you're, very, if you're, if you're interested in the character. Now, I should mention that in the last issue, issue 18, for whatever reason, scheduling, what, what's so forth, they let Kirby draw that last issue. And... It's a surfer that is enraged, that has just given up on humanity. In fact, he's so tired of humanity attacking him and misinterpreting his motives that he's, he swears that he's going to avenge himself uh, against uh, the people of Earth. But then the series ends, and then they never actually return to uh, that sort of dramatic uh, cliffhanging finale, so to speak. So I guess we're left to assume that the surfer's temper cools off panel. Yes, there. and... Uh, a lot of Kirby uh, historians have hazarded a guess that is that Kirby himself mm. expressing his his own rage and frustration w- with dealing with Marvel because he leaves the company right around that time, 1970. Mm. So check out uh, Silver Silver Volume One, Number 18. That that final climactic uh, page. It, it is an enraged. So it's not mm. the, it's not the noble. Pacifistic. Pacifistic. Some might, some if they're not like it, some might say whiny. Others would say uh, philosophical surfer. This is this is a surfer who's just had it, and, and he's enraged. Yeah. So. Oh, and talking of uh, Kirby's rage and frustration, by the way, before we move on, please. Um, uh, you know, I, I think the the source of that rage, uh, where this character, the Silver Surfer, is concerned, comes. Now, not strictly from the fact that he wasn't allowed to draw the first issue of The Surfer's Ongoing, uh, but the fact that uh, he felt that The Surfer had kind of been wrested out of his grasp in more than one sense. 
Um, you know, you, you said earlier that Stan Lee had absolutely nothing to do with the conception of the Silver right. Surfer at first. Well, similarly, Kirby had absolutely nothing to do with the drafting of the origin story that we've all come That's to know. That's true, yep. Because Kirby had very different ideas about where the Surfer came from than Stan did. You know, the Zen La, Shalabal, Norin Rad, all of that stuff was pure Stan Lee. Yes. Uh, Kirby's idea was that uh, the Silver Surfer was nothing but inert cosmic energy that was given... Uh, life and form and sentience by Galactus, and that then had to f- uh, learn the mysteries of humanity. Uh, it was even at an even greater disadvantage than Norrin Rad was. Uh, well, well the, you know, the version of the Surfer as uh, Lee conceived it. Um, and Kirby uh, kind of took exception to Lee running with the ball in such a different direction. Although, all of that said, I'm kind of hard-pressed to say that I think uh, what Kirby had in mind for the Surfer was in any way better than what Stan gave us. I mean, that's this image of uh, the, the restless soul who thinks he's, he's going to strike this bargain and uh, save his planet and buy himself a life of adventure all in one fell swoop, little realizing how much he's giving up yep. and what, how much will be taken from him in exchange. I mean, it's just it's great, tragic irony of practically worthy of Shakespeare. And uh, so uh, nice as Kirby's idea was, I think I, I like Lee's even better. So It's, it's one, other, one more facet of that. That timeless, not timeless, but that long-running debate about Lee versus Kirby and their roles, their contributions, which is a whole nother ball of wax. Uh, we've, we touch upon it many times, these histories. You guys, years ago, did a Lee versus Kirby great debate episode. It's a great episode. You had, you had on different uh, fans and, and experts who talked about their contributions. It's a fascinating episode. That I, was I a long time yes, ago. Yes, years back. I recommend people uh, check that one out. Now, I want to mention a couple of things about the Surfer's print publishing history. Interesting. Now, Kirby left Marvel in 1970 for DC, where he'll, he'll of course, create the new gods, Commandy. Uh, he'll do all of his, his, his great bron- early Bronze Age work uh, over at DC, OMAC. And then he becomes dissatisfied, and he returns to Marvel in the mid-'70s. He's living in California by this point, of course. In 1978, he and Lee produce, again, under the fireside imprint, I want to say it's Marvel's first original graphic novel titled The Silver Surfer. Could you bring that up, Shane? I think it's under Silver Surfer. Where is it? Lee Kirby graphic novel. That's the one. Now, Notice this title, the subtitle is The Ultimate Cosmic Experience. Have you read this, Murd? No. I hadn't even known it existed, but okay. I love, yeah, I've I love never the seen, cover. Yeah. I've seen a lot of graphic novel covers. I've never yeah. seen that one. The this lettering is, design is very disco era. Oh, yeah. Well, you mean the, you mean the, the, the female character? No, no, well, the, the lettering design. The all-new design. Stan Lee oh, and Jack yeah. Kirby, yeah. the ultimate. Yep. In, in like I feel like uh, neon tubing. Dancing. It's 1978, mm-hmm. baby. Sure is. That Star Wars, Battlestar Galactica, that whole oh, era. So Such a great time. Now... I've read this and I've owned it. I don't own it now. I've owned it as a retail. I've read it. Highly recommend it. It's not, it's not, if I remember correctly, it's not in Marvel continuity of the time at all. It's just Lee and Kirby doing a Silver Surfer story. Yep, it has been relegated to alternate reality status. It has, okay. And Mert, you and I did talk about this a long time ago. Maybe you don't recall. And I think you said that it had been reprinted once. This uh, graphic novel yeah, you're talking about. I think so. Because I was talking about this on some episode, this is a while back, and I, made, I think I made the mistake of saying it's never been reprinted. Either you or someone online corrected me and said, no, it has been reprinted maybe one time. Probably somebody else, okay. because I really don't think I was aware of this thing's Fair existence enough. until now, just now. Now, having said that, 
if there's been if there's a reprint of it, it was years ago because I've never seen this reprinted in recent memory. I, I it's whenever I go to Ides in Pittsburgh, they always have a copy of it in their in one of their many uh, fabled glass cases, and uh, it's expensive, but it's 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 not going to break the bank. Is it hardback or trade paperback? Both. Okay. Hardbacks are very difficult to find. Trade paperback, going with the eBay thing. Yes, fifteen dollars. Hardback, thirty-eight to seventy. Okay, fifteen dollars. That's all for the soft. For the cover. trade paperback, yeah, yeah. For the one that I see that sold recently. Okay. I was just curious. If you're a surfer fan, gotta read it because it's Lee and Kirby working together one last time on this character they both clearly loved. Um, and this one, Kirby had had a detente with Lee, and he was back with Marvel for a period of a couple years uh, in the mid to late. 1970s. So we did the Eternals and Devil Dinosaur and right. his wacky fun Black Panther and Captain America runs and Mad Bomb and so <laughs> forth. So. Yeah, you know what? 40 for something like that that I see, someone, that's not terrible for a price on a hardback that's that old and kind of rare. Yeah. Uh, considering what you pay for hardback OGNs now. Good point. So it's out there on the secondary yeah. market. I would Plenty imagine Marvel, well, I'm surp- I mean, granted, the surfers attached to the Fox Studios. They've been kind of, well, the FF especially, I've just been kind of like cast aside essentially, mm. which I think is shameful. Drives but, me nuts. Um, Absolutely, yeah, drives so, me nuts. So hopefully, we'll see that book reproduced. It's definitely worth checking out, just for the historical aspect of it alone. Now, then, Lee, John Byrne, and Tom Palmer did a Silver Surfer Volume Two one shot in 1982, which you can often find in back issue bins and for not much. Again, any chance Lee would have to write this character, he would take it. And one of my early experiences of the surfer, which I have always cherished, in 1988, Lee teams up with the f- legendary French artist Mobius. And if you go to the Lee, uh, it says Parable, Shane, that, okay. that image. Done. They team up, thank you, sir, do a Silver Surfer miniseries. I I never as I'm I'm a kid 1988 so I was 15. I'd never heard of Mobius before. Um, this art blew me away. The way he drew Galactus almost as a being sort of emanating from just energy. So have you guys read this story? No, I have, and I reread it just a couple of nights ago. I look forward to your opinion in just a moment. His capturing the Surf is more of a life figure, uh, and I, I think. A lot of people lampoon Stan Lee's writing sort of post-Silver, early Bronze Age, like, like, like he's lost it. Mm, yeah, and I would agree with that in most cases, yeah. but not this story. I, th- I believe the story won an Eisner. Murd's going to disagree with me here, obviously. Mm, yeah, I, I think fine. this can be filed under Stan Lee having lost it as well. All right. Entered as evidence Explain, sir. Him. Explain. <sighs> it's just... It just seems kind of, I don't know, weakly moralistic. I mean, he, the thrust of the plot is Galactus shows up. He's going to uphold the letter of his promise not to attack Earth again. He instead presents himself as a uh, sort of a heathen god figure. And uh, he details to human beings, you know, I'm this godlike being telling you, rule yourselves, do what you will. Uh, let, do not be ruled by the bonds of traditional morality. Just do whatever you want. Yes. And uh, then he sits back and uh, smirks as he watches humankind uh, all too credulously listen to what he tells them and begin destroying one another. 
And uh, so he, that, that's his plot. He's not going to destroy the earth. He's going to let human beings destroy one another, and then he'll... Consume the earth. Eat the pieces. Yeah. <laughs> so the Silver Surfer is there trying desperately to reach the people, and there's some uh, televangelist charlatan type that's uh, taken advantage of Galactus's coming to further his, yes. for his own gain. And, and, then in hum- and the human beings around earth were... And, Stanley is just kind of manipulating them like puppets. They're not at all believable in the way they respond to all of this. It's just they're reacting in the way Lee wants them to. I mean, he's he's greatly exaggerating the the principle of groupthink. Uh, it's a little bit like a Capra movie, except uh, shoddier. <laughs> Fantastic. So that, that's really all I've really got to say about that. The artwork is much nicer, but oh. I'm not as well qualified to discuss art. Fair enough. I think for me, I mean. Actually, Murray, I'm just, I don't disagree with anything you just said. For me, this is one of the first Silver Surfer stories I read outside of Origin of Marvel Comics, Son of Origin, some of the, some of the, if it's a, a volume three, which is coming out by that point. I was just, the art especially took, take, still takes me, and I, I love Mobius's rendition of Galactus and the Surfer. And I'm such a huge Stan Lee fan, and he can get very hammy. There's no question about it. And, and again, I agree. In his, la- his later writing efforts, I think, in general, are often pretty subpar. But I, I think for me in this story, I just emerged. I'm excuse me. If you go up to the uh, the Lee Mobius finale image, uh, I'll read it to you. I ride my board. It matters not how far. It matters not how fast. I have no destination. I go where the winds of chance may carry me. I have known the heady ex- exaltation of victory. I have known the gnawing pain of defeat. But it shall never cease searching for an oasis of sanity in this des- desert of madness that men call Earth. For the worst fate of all amid countless worlds and endless stars is to be forever alone. And it's a little hammy, but it's Lee mm-hmm. doing the Silver Surfer. I just eat it up, yep. basically. Trying to make a point uh, about blind faith and religion and all of that and not yeah. doing it all that well. <laughs> There's some nice poetry along the way, I suppose, but... Uh... Uh, yeah, it, it, it overall kind of left me cold. I, I, I bought it and read. I, I I don't have the issues. There was like a one shot reprint of yes. it sometime in the nineties, and I, I bought a copy of that. And I found it uh, instantly forgettable then. And having <laughs> read it now, I think I understand why. <laughs> I, I, I kind of kept it in the uh, in the uh, uh, Brian, Brian Deemer section of your brain. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yes, just uh, in in like the. Uh, you know, the, the amygdala, whatever the uh, junk section of uh, the, the, the trash file of the memory would be. <laughs> to be filed in the, in the, in the, in the, the, the closest uh, trash, uh, not, not compactor, receptacle. We can go with compactor. That's okay. <laughs> in this company, that's, that's good. That's a fair point, my friend. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, we have two different views on Parable. You can check it out and you decide. But uh, Murden has said, I don't, I don't disagree with him. I, I, I look at it probably through the eyes of nostalgia on that one. <laughs> But Which if you're a Mobius fair. fan, definitely check out Power. God, just, just those two images alone yeah. look gorgeous. That yeah. Galactus face is fantastic. And, well, it's sort of this craggy, ancient yeah. visage. Now, Silver Surfer Volume 3 is, is 146 issues, 1987-1999. That's the longest series the Surfer's had. By far. And I think Murray and I have fond memories of that series. Uh, I know you're a big Ron Lim fan. Mm, I am. Yeah. And also Ron Mars. Yes, who yeah, also... So- contributed to that yeah, book. This is a series that I intend long-term to collect. And because they've never, they never reprinted the whole thing as far as I can, as far as I know. 
And we have a lot of them in our bargain bins at Wild Pit Comics, 14 South Michigan Avenue, Kettlewood, New Jersey. <laughs> Indeed. And if you love Marvel Cosmic and the history of Marvel Cosmic, this is a series you really should check out. It's a lot of fun. There's also a lot of – it surfaces a lot of pathos. It goes very deep into the Marvel's cosmic history. Listen to these heavy hitters that work on it. Steve Engelhardt and Marshall Rogers start out with the initial issues. Engelhardt scripts 1 through 31. Starlin ish, uh, scripts with uh, limb penciling, issues 34 to 40 and 50. He brings back Thanos in those stories. He brings back Adam Warlock. Um, Mephisto plays a role. Later runs are scripted by Ron Mars, as I mentioned, also by the great J.M. Demetrius. That's where the surface from with Alicia Masters with the Demetrius is writing it. Oh, that might be fun to read. Uh, yeah, there's they, one year's worth of stories written by George Perez, believe it or not. That's wow. right. Thank you, sir. This is a, this is a damn good huh. series. you got the surfer hanging out with Mantis, uh, like in-betweener shows up, mm, like all those different comic fights entities. Galactus. Yep. I remember the cover of the Galactus punching him. <laughs> um, Ron Lim. I first became conscious of Ron Lim through this series. Uh, the Surfer interacts. Uh, I think the, 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 the spirit of Captain Marvell returns at one point. Excellent series. Surfer Surfer Volume 3. Not expensive. Uh, I, I highly recommend it. What thoughts do you have on the series, Mert? Um, well, a great diversity of different Marvel cosmic concepts being juggled by a variety of different creators. Um, you know, Steve Englehart in his uh, initial run, he does some... Uh, some interesting stuff with the elders of the universe, some of whom have apparently been corrupted and are planning to, uh, I think, in effect, annihilate uh, all life in the universe. So they can, I know, of, I'm not sure what their end game was, but yeah, a few of them broke away into a little uh, malignant sect, and uh, the Silver Surfer and Mantis were forced to, to deal with all of that. Um, yeah, uh, under uh, both, yeah, Starlin comes back. Uh, you've already covered all of that. Uh, Ron Mars, uh, he, he does uh, some things with the family of uh, Galactus's heralds. Uh, there's an arc called the Herald Ordeal. Um, you know, Nova was, you, you mentioned a while ago that Frankie Ray, Nova, would be an important member of the yeah. Surfer's supporting cast. Well, that was during this run. <laughs> and romantically Ron, involved. I, I uh, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Uh, Nova became pretty important to the and Surfer. And he, he kind of awakens her because she had kind of uh, inured herself to what Galactus was really doing, and she was, mm. like, enthusiastically helping him, and he, he kind of made her realize what she was participating in and mm. kind of sort of reawakened her humanity, yeah. uh, essentially. And she, in turn, reached something in him. Yes, yeah, because they, they, they shared a perspective that uh, very few other beings in all of existence right. could share. And then that Herald Ordeal story I mentioned introduced a new Herald, Morg, who is an executioner from some alien planet. Does he kill Nova? Um, I forget exactly how Nova ends up dying, but uh, she does die. Right. That's the upshot of that arc. Also introduces the son of Galactus, Tyrant. A character who's, uh, yeah, he was kind of like a proto-herald to Galactus, a being that he created, but that Galactus created to assuage his, or its, as, as you mm. prefer, uh, loneliness mm. in the cosmos. But uh, Tyrant then rebelled and uh, you know, tried to conquer all life, and uh, Galactus had to shut him away someplace. Mm. Um, so, yeah, these are all you know, worthy things that take place in the, uh, the Silver Surfer series of the 80s and 90s. I didn't and, know so many different creators wrote him during that oh, time. Oh, yeah. It's, be, a, it's a really good series. I'd be interested to read the Demetrius and the Paris stuff at the very least. Hmm. Yeah, it's good. And I wanted to end the Silver Surfer segment of our episode just touching upon what I think is the already classic Dan Slott, Mike Allred run on the character. I think technically it's volume seven and eight of the Silver Surfer. Uh, I, we're all reading that series. Well, is it the time bubble for you, Murd? 
Um, yeah, uh, well, yes, eventually it will yeah. be. Yeah. You, same, same with I'm not current on it at okay, all. Okay, but you've read some of it. I've read some yeah. of it. Well, um, <laughs> Marvel's not current on it either. No, that's true, too. It, it's a couple of months behind. It sure is. Yeah, issues it, shipping late. It panics me every time I go through and order my monthly stuff. I'm like, all right, Silver Surfer's missing. I start searching around trying to find it. Um, I just went through over the summer and got all the issues that I had missed because I only got the first couple from the first iteration of this went through and got everything up to today in one lump back issue binge uh from a one of the shops it's, online. if you can call up the surfer dawn green image please uh shane we'll kind of end our server server segment with this image i i often talk about on this program about the creators i respect most or those who who will put their own stamp on a, on a long-established character but not disrespect the history of the character. And Dan Slott does that so brilliantly in this series. There's an image, uh, it was when they first started it, where they show you in one panel the surfer's whole history. They had had Buscema imagery, Kirby imagery, uh, sort of in the reflection of the character. And going forward from that, you are fully aware of the surfer as a character, where he's come from, uh, what he's experienced. None of that is wiped away. But by bringing in the brilliant plot device of the Dawn Greenwood character as his Doctor Who-like companion, and how she, sort of like Alicia Mash, but on a more profound level, brings out his humanity to the point where in some scenes he removes the glaze. You see Norrin Rat as he originally appeared. Hmm. Um, these stories are charming. They're often very funny. But there's also great pathos. Like any good Silver Surfer story, it also addresses some of the great questions of existence. And what they experience, what you know, questions of time, of love, uh, of history. Uh, it, I think it's one of Marvel's most innovative series that they produced, besides the Vision by Tom King, in quite some time. Yeah. So I'd agree with that. If you're a Silver Surfer fan, or if you just want to experience the character for the first time, they've put out trades of these of the first mm-hmm. few arcs of the series you should pick them up because i don't think you know a lot about the surfer to even enjoy them either no no, no because yeah. i i don't know a lot and and the issues that i've read i i thoroughly enjoyed yeah so that's a i think it's a special series and it, it so taps into all the great points of that character but but but, but there's a lot of humor added to it through don Greenwood is like our point of view character sure and she she provides a window into this all-inspiring world of interstellar travel and, and just cosmic questions, and she grounds it. And uh, and I think Allred's art works so beautifully in the series. Uh, remember that early issue where we, they went to that world? I can't yeah, remember the name of it. Yeah, but you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, I do. Yeah, it's breathtaking. Beautiful mm-hmm. double-page yeah. spread. Yeah. Oh, yes, I do remember the spread. Yeah. yeah. So the Silver Surfer is very much alive and well in the Marvel Universe, especially thanks to what Slot Allred done. Now... You recall in the 2000s, Word mentioned the character was kind of adrift. There was a, 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 a Straczynski story where they actually killed the surfer. Did you guys read that? Mm-mm. No. No. Where, where did that a, appear? It was a miniseries in the 2000s hmm. where Straczynski has the surfer die from some kind of affliction. It's, it's, it's a good story. I, I don't think it's in – it's obviously – I don't remember how they got, the, got out of that or explained it away. Maybe some of the forums can help us. I don't have it in front of me. Uh, but that's something worth checking out too. It's, it's I don't even know if it's in continuity now. But he goes to the FF. They can't help him. Uh, it's it's an interesting story. It's it's JMS. He's a he's a great writer. So. Yeah, yeah. 
that's something I would check out as well. That seems like something I would have looked up, though, considering what he was writing at the time with Spider-Man and then Thor and all. Just, I don't know how I would have missed that. Hmm. Well, like Murd said, the, the, the 2000 the Surfer was kind of, it was a bit of drift, I would mm. say. No pun intended. Uh. All righty, uh, we've returned. Uh, we took a little uh, potty break there. Now, unfortunately, Shane had to leave us because uh, he has uh, family obligations to attend to. Mm-hmm. So teleported right out of here between the seconds. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if you see, if you're if you're following us on video, I wanted to show one more image from our surface segment before we moved on to Captain Marvel. This is a, a classic Im- John Buscem art, and and. and this is this image is a good example of how why Buscema was such a great Conan artist. Uh, the way he renders the, the, the women dancing here, trying to seduce the surfer, and Mephisto is trying to tempt him. I urge you, wait. Answer not in haste. You need not make a choice. Accept them all in place of Shalabal, for the generosity of Mephisto was truly beyond compare. Of course, the surfer does not succumb to this temptation of the flesh. Naturally. Because, again, he's supposed to be like this messianic Christ-like figure mm-hmm. in Lee's hands. So this is the temptation upon the mount. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed, sir. But I just wanted to show this last image. It's just, just breathtaking uh, John uh, Buscema artwork. So I can't, I can't emphasize it enough. Now, And one other image. For, well, not image so much, but story from that same please, era. Please, my friend, continue. That I, I feel we must mention before please, we move please. on. Uh, the, the Silver Surfer, the first series, volume uh, number five. Uh, that is the story in which Silver Surfer goes up against the Stranger. And it's also when the issue in which we're introduced briefly to a scientist named Al Harper. Uh, Explain, who, sir. Well done. Uh, well, uh, the Stranger has, uh, for reasons of his own, his motives are always terribly mysterious the stranger, <laughs> the stranger, in, in the Silver Age and afterwards. Um, he decided he wanted to destroy life on Earth, and he'd rigged up a super weapon to do so, but Al Harper sacrificed his life to thwart the Stranger's designs. And he, in so doing, inspired the Stranger to uh, abandon those designs, actually, temporarily, anyway, and uh, depart from Earth. And also, it had a pretty profound effect on the surfer, because it showed him uh, a better side to humanity than he had uh, thus far seen. Uh, it's its uh, capacity for uh, self-sacrifice in pursuit of a, a greater goal or, or the greater good. And uh, he, he kept the memory of Al Harper alive uh, and, and kept revisiting it mentally and physically in some cases. Uh, there are several stories over the years where he revisited Al Harper's grave. Um, but it, it's something that had a profound effect on the surfer and his uh, opinion of humanity. And kudos to Marvel Editorial and the creators for ret- for maintaining that continuity, returning to that plot line in the future. I wasn't aware. Of, I knew of the Al Harper story. I wasn't aware that they returned to it uh, more than once. Oh, forgive me. Am I not speaking well off the microphone? My apologies, ladies and gentlemen. How do I sound now? Uh, a little louder. All right. There, better yet. Excellent. Now, uh, if, we're, if we're done with the surf, we're going to move on to Captain Marvel. Murd, you ready for that? You bet I am. The most cosmic superhero of all. Now... Uh, let me call up an image for the audience here. Let's find it. One moment, please. Let's see. No, not that one. Hmm. Shane makes it look easy, doesn't he? He does make it look easy. Because <laughs> I am failing miserably, ladies and gentlemen, trying to find the image that I want to use. No, not that one. Shane, uh, I think I found it. You are deeply missed, sir. Because right now I am blundering. 
through the video process. But have no fear, ladies and gentlemen, we will sort this out momentarily. I'm trying to find... No, not that one. All right, let's do this. Now, Captain Marvell was introduced in 1967. He first appeared in Marvel Superheroes number 12, which is the cover I'm trying to find right now and failing miserably at doing. <laughs> so uh, bear with me. I hopefully will find that. Here we go. Got it. Okay. My apologies, ladies and gentlemen. I am a Luddite when it comes to technology, more so even than Murd, which is saying something. Mm -hmm. So Indeed. Here we go. Now. This is Captain Marvell, or as the people of Earth mangled in his, the pronunciation of his Cree name, they called him conveniently Captain Marvel. And this is his first appearance in Marvel Superheroes number 12, uh, 1967. That's a little bit of background here. And Murd is well versed in all of this. The original name, Captain Marvel, of course, comes from Fawcett Publications. Uh, the character was published from 1939 to 1953. And this, of course, is the Captain Marvel we know who always shouts Shazam, which transforms from young Billy Batson into Captain Marvel. Now, why don't you regale the ones with why Captain Marvel vanished from print? Uh, well, for legal reasons. Uh, the, the, the National Publications, also known as DC, uh, argued that uh, Captain Marvel was too similar to uh, Superman, their own character, mm -hmm. and uh, therefore a violation of trademark. And a court rather benightedly found in uh, DC National's favor, and so Fawcett was forced to cease and desist publication of Captain Marvel comics, which pretty much broke their back as a comics publisher. But they were starting to lose interest in yeah. There were probably concessions that, that could have been made, uh, you know, other steps that could have been taken to keep Captain Marvel and his ilk alive at Fawcett, but they were kind of done with comics publishing. And we should mention that, because you said ilk, Captain Marvel had a whole universe of characters that accompanied oh, him. Yes. All of that was wiped out uh, by when they, gave up, when they finally gave up the ghost in that lawsuit in uh, 1953. And the character was basically sued out of existence. It didn't reappear until DC ironically got the property. And they had to rename him Shazam for reasons we're going to get into in just a moment right. in the 1970s. So now, so once the Fawcett character vanishes from the newsstand, and there is no Captain Marvel out there, uh, until 1966, Myron Fass, MF Enterprises, which was a small publisher, they produced their own Captain Marvel and I never knew this until the research. Did you ever hear of this? An Android. I not only have heard of this, I own one or two issues Merge, of this. Then fire away. Yeah, I know actually, nothing about it. Jamie D., on one of our trips to the Toronto Fan Expo, dug up an issue of the MF Captain Marvel and uh, presented it to me as a present. Brother D. Uh, yes, but you're right. He was an alien android mm -hmm. who, uh, on Earth, masqueraded as college professor Roger Winkle <laughs> at Dartmoor <laughs> College. And, uh, yes, his superpower was to yell the word split and his arms and legs would fly off in different directions, and he could sort of mentally control them as they flew around. And uh, So the, these free-flying projectiles that he used to hit bad guys with. And when he said, <laughs> Zam, X-A-M, which sounds a lot like the second syllable of Shazam, yeah. he could then uh, bring himself back together again. He had kind of a red and blue segmented costume. It looked a little bit like a Peter Cannon Thunderbolts. Okay, in the suit. all right. And uh, that series didn't last very long, to say the least. Not at all. And um, it didn't really deserve to. It was not high-quality material. It was <laughs> silly enough to be a, well, a, a funny and amusing in theory, but the stories themselves were just not great. Fair enough. Not great at all. Well, and it seems that that issue or that character 
gave Martin Goodman the idea. Martin Goodman, of course, is the publisher of Marvel Comics. He was Stan Lee's boss. Uh, we've talked about him many times in other episodes uh, dealing with Marvel's history, like our aforementioned FF Silver Age spotlights. And uh, Goodman was a canny, shrewd businessman. And he said, well, we're Marvel Comics. We should have the Captain Marvel trademark. And since it was out floating in the air, Goodman got his hands on it. He ordered Stan Lee to come up with a new Captain Marvel character. So they would then control the trademark of that name. And... Hence, we have Marvel Superheroes number 12, which was a, a Marvel sort of anthology book of the, of the Silver Age. And Lee and the great Gene Colan, Gene the Dean Colan, we've talked about many times in our spotlights. We're going to talk about Daredevil, for example, Tomb of Dracula, one of my favorite artists from all of Marvel's history, one of my favorite comic book artists of all time. I treasure the Howard the Duck sketch I had they did for me that hangs on the wall of my shop uh, while at the comics. Uh, Lee and Colan came up with a new Captain Marvel. Now, this Captain Marvel is a Kree. Why don't you give a quick tutorial on who the Kree are, please? Uh, the Kree are one of the oldest alien races in the Marvel Universe, not just in terms of having been introduced early in uh, Marvel, well, in the existence of Marvel Comics as a publishing line, but also in story. They're one of the most ancient races in the Marvel Universe. Um, they're typically blue-skinned, although occasional interbreeding over the centuries with other races have produced a uh, pink-skinned or you know, human, earthly, Caucasian skin tone uh, sub-race. Uh, to have developed, uh, who are the subject of racial prejudice. Which Captain Marvel is part of that. Yes, exactly. Race. Yes, yes. yes. Marvel is a pink-skinned Kree, and uh, the, his elitist uh, uh, blue-skinned Kree superiors never let him forget it. He's a, a victim of prejudice because of that. Um, yeah, so the Kree have always been kind of a warlike, militaristic race, um, and they've been involved in a uh, star-spanning struggle with uh, another longtime Marvel Comics alien race, the Skrulls, mm -hmm. for untold millennia. Uh, going back to well, far, far ancient times, um, <clears throat> uh, there, there was some uh, story of. Uh uh, yeah, I think the scrolls actually came to them with uh, a promise of uh, advanced technology and, and uh, with the Kotati. Yes, right? yes. yes. Uh, the, the Kotati were another ra a race of plant-like humanoids uh, living on uh, the the Cree homeworld, Pama, back in ancient days. And uh, so the, the, there was a contest between those two to see which was the more worthy race of the scrolls' patronage. The scrolls were a bit more benevolent in those days. Uh, the Kotati <laughs> won. The Kree lost. The Kree were enraged, and uh, they attacked and killed the scroll delegation. And that uh, touched off this uh, millennia-spanning conflict uh, that, has, as a result, uh, led the scrolls down rather a more martial yes. path than they otherwise would have had. Which, of course, you know Marvel history as the Kree-Scroll War. Yes, which is very important to Captain Marvel history, yes, too. Yes, it is. And uh, the Kree also are kind of at an evolutionary dead end. And, that's, uh, and so they, they developed eventually this uh, uh, bionic artificial intelligence known as the Supreme Intelligence, which is a gestalt of the <laughs> minds of uh, all of the greatest Kree thinkers, yeah. scientists, philosophers, politicians, so forth, of, of each generation. Each, as each Kree thinker dies a natural death, uh, his or her mind is then... Uh, patched into the programming of the Supreme Intelligence. So it is able to evolve and become still more brilliant over the years. And uh, eventually the Supreme Intelligence got it into its holographic head that uh, <laughs> uh, the Kree race needed to be uh, evolutionarily jump-started. And that led it to brew all kinds of schemes uh, that in which Captain Marvel, the character, became later embroiled. Absolutely. Well so done, there's sir. your Kree alien race primer. Ah. Uh. Fine primer, sir. Thank you kindly, Chris. Now, so 
Lee and Colin come up with this character, Captain Marvel, and now his Cree name is Marvell, M-A-R-V-E-L-L. But in the ears of human beings, he's, it sounded like Marvel, so they called him Captain Marvel. So that's how Lee came up with the clever idea to bring the Captain Marvel name into uh, the Marvel Universe, but under the guise of a totally different character that is nothing like the Shazam character, or for that matter, the android who splits off his, <laughs> his body parts. Now, you look at the image... Uh, Marvel was wearing the uniform of a Cree, an officer in the Cree military. And Roy Thomas, I ran interview he said he, he came up with the idea of the color scheme, which he says he, he thinks is one of his worst ideas. I kind of like the uniform, actually. The, so the green and white, uh, you know, the, the planet on the chest. Uh, the Cree military has different color-coded uniforms for different ranks, mm. uh, essentially. And Marvel is sent to Earth as part of a, a military reconnaissance mission to spy on the Earthlings and to determine when they're going to be ripe for conquest by the Kree. And the commander of his mission is a Kree officer named Jan Rog, who is violently jealous of Marvel's uh, loving relationship with the medic on the mission, Una. Um, and that's going to lead down a dangerous path for those characters. And Marvel lands on Earth as part of his reconnaissance mission by an amazing coincidence. He looks exactly like a scientist at Cape Canaveral named Dr. Walter Lawson, who happens to die for Tootlesy for Marvel in an automobile accident. <laughs> and because Marvel looks just like him, he can now pose as Dr. Walter Lawson. And This is a plot device he, that was already like 25 years stale by the time <laughs> Stanley uses it. This happened in the Golden Age, and then they could get away with it. Yep. Kind of induces eye rolls, even in the 60s. But anyway. But... By some amazing coincidence, he looks like Lawson. He can now pose as him and infiltrate Cape Canaveral, where he meets Carol Danvers, who is the head of security at Cape Canaveral. And he can try to sort of determine the, the strengths and weaknesses of Earth's defenses, its, its science, and so forth. But during his time on Earth, he comes to realize that human beings have great potential he sees them as some, a, a species and a plant that should be protected rather than subjugated. He convinces Una of, 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 the, of the, sort of the correct course of his feelings. And Jan Rog finds out about this, and there's a whole confrontation. Uh, Una will die uh, during that confrontation, and then later Jan Rog will be killed as well in battle with Marvell. But from the outset, Marvell is definitely sort of stranger in a strange land, a man from another world who's then renounced by his, his home world because they see him as a traitor. And uh, the early issues of Captain Marvel, the, the book, because it starts at Marvel Superheroes 12. It, he appears in Marvel Superheroes 12 and 13, and then he gets his own book, Captain Marvel's eponymous title. And with the first several issues, he appears in his Kree military uniform. He doesn't have great cosmic powers. He has the Kree-like uni-beam blaster on his wrist, and he has, you know, he's a Cree, so he's stronger than humans. He can lift like yeah. a ton, and he has greater durability and speed mm -hmm. and so forth. Greater density of tissues. Exactly. But he's not flying around or anything like that. That comes later. Yeah, he's not all that cosmic just yet. Exactly. Well put, Murd. And as you mentioned, human beings, they see this new super. They, they, they hear Marvel. They think, oh, Marvel. So they call him Captain Marvel. And that's how that moniker is attached to this new hero uh, in the Marvel Universe. Now... The problem was Captain Marvel wasn't selling well, uh, and it went through a whole host of creators. I'm going to read off sort of this roll call of great names here. Uh, 
Well, Roy Thomas, first of all. Yep. Because Stanley handed this character off to him almost immediately. And, and Gil Kane worked on him. Uh, the great Wayne Boring from Superman in the 50s. Yeah, I was surprised to learn that. And that's another example of how, this, this is a credit to Lee and Thomas, they tried to give legendary creators, they tried to give legendary creators work who had been cast out by other companies or at sort of the end of their careers. They did that for Gardner Fox, they did it for uh, Jerry Siegel, and they're going to do it here for Wayne Boring. Now, he didn't work out very well in Captain, Captain Marvel title, mm-hmm. but it's to their credit uh, they gave him some work in that sense. But uh, Jerry Conway does some work, uh, Archie Goodwin, uh, Don Heck, Arnold Drake. They're going through a lot of different teams trying to find a place uh, for this character, essentially. But sales are not doing well. Now, I should mention, as I just refer to my notes here, during these early issues, they do start to give Marvel more powers. Uh, there's a being called Zoe. <laughs> Flip it around, you can see where they're going with that. The great and Bird, powerful. Bird, you, you want to elaborate on that a little yes. bit? Yes. I am Zoe, the great <laughs> and powerful. Pay no attention to that Cree behind the curtain. The great and powerful Zoe. So, yeah, so it, it's not a real cosmic being. It's a sham. It's a ruse to trick Captain Marvel into doing yeah. certain things. So we learn eventually that it's some of his uh, Cree foes that are uh, manipulating Ronan him. Ronan the Accuser is, is one of them, mm-hmm. actually. In collusion with uh, his old commander, uh, Zarek, who had risen through the ranks to become a high-ranking minister in the Cree government. Yes. So he and Ronan are conspiring against the Supreme Intelligence, and they're giving Captain Marvel extra powers, uh, supposedly through you know, cosmic benevolence, but actually through technology, uh, to, to get him to come back to Cree law and attack the Supreme Intelligence for them. Because they want to overthrow the Supreme Intelligence in a coup. And sees power, and Marvel actually foils this attempt, and he, and the Supreme Intelligence rewards him, and he gets his his more famous uh, costume, which I'll call up in just a moment on the screen. A Gil Kane design. Yes. yes, and the costume change was was actually uh, recommended, suggested by Roy Thomas, based on the research I've done, because again they were trying to find a way to. to stave off cancellation for this book. We, can't, we can never forget the business side of comics and how that often influences creative directions that a, a, a character uh, and a title might take. So they're doing the best they can to uh, sort of keep Marvel going here. And uh, so they change his costume. They give him more powers. Now, the Zoe character, which really is Ronan in disguise... They are going to empower Marvel, so he's going to lose the, the, the Kree military uniform. And so what, what, what Zoe does, they give him the ability to fly, they give him enhanced strength, to teleport. He can also create illusions in people's minds. These are all to make him more powerful being so, as Murr described, he could take on the uh, supreme intelligence. But Marvel uh, actually foils their scheme. And I'm going to show you here... Here are the Negabands, and this, of course, is the famous Captain Marvel costume. At least the, the costume went through a couple different iterations. You notice Marvel has white hair here. When he first appears, his hair is white. The blonde hair comes later. Now, you'll notice in this image, he has the Negabands. And shortly after he is, he uh, helps the Supreme Intelligence. He's, he's trapped in the negative zone, which is mentioned, of course, in depth in the Fantastic Four in the Silver Age and beyond. And Rick Jones, the professional sidekick of Marvel Comics history, he is drawn by the Supreme Intelligence to this cave where he finds the Kree negabands. And you can tell this is inspired by Billy Batson. And he clanks them together and 
he switches places with Mar- Marv, as he calls him. Marvel ends up on back on Earth. Rick's floating in the negative zone, and Marvel can stay on Earth for three hours before he ha- starts to lose his powers and he has to go back. And for much of the series, it's about these two men in this very, very difficult situation, trading back and forth from the negative zone, essentially. Do you want to say anything about the Negabands murder? Uh, well, n- n- not exactly. Um, yeah, um, they're, they're sort of a precursor to the quantum bands that one of my exactly. favorite characters, Quasar, would mm-hmm. eventually wield. But yeah, they're, they're described here as an artifact of ancient Kree technology. The quantum bands uh, come from a slightly different place. And the quantum bands in, give Marv uh, incredible powers. Uh, he can draw energy into them. He can uh, f- uh, shoot energy, projection, project energy. Uh, so it just makes him a more powerful figure. In addition, the, the powers he's already gotten from, quote, Zoe. Now he has the Negabands as well. But again, he has that Achilles heel. He has to constantly trade places with Rick, uh, essentially, for him to go to Earth and uh, act as its protector. Now... As you mentioned, though, sales are in a slump. And the title is on the verge of cancellation. And enter Jim Starlin. Now, Jim Starlin was one of those creators who had grown up in the Silver Age, had uh, done a lot of reading of Silver Age Marvel comics, and his father worked for Chrysler. He grew up in Detroit, and so the story goes from what I've read. His father one day brought home tracing paper and pencils, and Starlin never looked back. He was drawing ever since. He, he went, had spent some time in the Navy in the late 60s. He was producing work for some fanzines at that time. And like the people of, of that generation, Len Wein, Marv Wolfman, uh, Mike Friedrich, uh, Jerry Conway, so forth, he grew up a fan. He moved, became a professional. And he brought a new energy and passion, as many as other creators did, to these characters, these properties that he loved. And he, he found his way over to Marvel after he got out of the Navy. And he originally was hired to do uh, cover designs, which Gil Kane is especially famous for in the Bronze Age. And apparently Lee hated his work. He didn't think it was dynamic enough. He was fired off of that. But Thomas especially saw something in Starlin's work. And they gave him a couple issues of Iron Man, issues 55 and 56. Oh, very famous issues indeed. Murd, go ahead. Well, the uh, first appearance of a number of uh, famous cosmic characters. Uh, well, well, Thanos, most notably, but the entire uh, world of Titan, you know, satellite of Saturn, which uh, eventually, well, at first they were described as offshoots of Olympians, you know, like yeah. a, a, a beings of Olympian mythology, which is also a part of Marvel continuity, as yes. per Hercules, who's been an Avenger. Uh, but later retconned as an offshoot of the eternal race of Earth. So the Eternals of Titan. And so we are introduced to Mentor and Star Fox and uh, also Thanos of Titan in, in those couple of issues. And I believe, Is Drax the Destroyer introduced in those issues? I believe so. And okay. also, I'm going to say Moondragon. All right. We, we, again, I, wanted, I mentioned this at the beginning of our episode. We talk about Starlin. We're talking about a creator who, in, in this brief period of time, because we're, we're only talking a couple of years here, early in the 70s, lays the whole groundwork for much of Marvel's cosmic continuity, especially what you're seeing again in the, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Um, so his, his contributions here cannot be overstated. So Starlin gets his, his, his sort of his two issues of Iron Man. He already created Thanos on his own. He brought that, the idea to Marvel. Remember, Thanos is derived from the Greek word Thanatos, right? Meaning right, death. exactly, for death. And yeah. Eros for love, of course. So exactly. th- those are two characters he'd had flapping around in his head for years. And he gave them a home in the Marvel Universe. Yep. And 
Apparently, Lee didn't like his work in Iron Man either, so he was, he was taken off that book because the great George Tusk was coming back. from you know, He had left the book for a medical reason. But Thomas said, look, we're going to give you Captain Marvel. It's on the verge of cancellation. See what you can do with it. Now, as we've, we've talked this many times, we talk about great moments for creators. Oftentimes, that happens because you're dealing with a second-tier character and nobody cares about it anymore because they've they, they, they just kind of given up or it's, it's, it's a drift. They want to let someone try something to see if they can save it. And Thomas, and this is one of his hallmarks as an editor-in-chief, gave Starlin room. I have the quote, we're going to let Starlin be Starlin, essentially. And he let him run with Captain Marvel, and Starlin took a character who was kind of a run-of-the-mill, kind of like space hero, like soldier in space, that whole thing. He took him in a completely uh, different direction. And introduced, I think, one of the most dynamic and exciting uh, concepts of the 1970s uh, in the Captain Marvel uh, series. So we're talking about Starlin's role here a little bit. Now, Starlin takes over with issue 25. Uh, he'll, write, he'll be on the book as a plotter and artist and eventually as the writer. Well, he starts with his friend Mike Friedrich, who does scripting. Eventually, though, uh, and Friedrich worked with him on that Iron Man 55 issue as well. Though Friedrich, I read a quote, he gives almost all credit to Thanos to Starlin. But then Starlin becomes the, the writer and the penciler of uh, the Captain Marvel series from issues 25, ultimately through issue 34. He recast the character as, quote, the most cosmic superhero of all. And he creates an epic space opera. And we find Marvel now, again, going back and forth with Rick. He's still tied into that sort of negative zone symbiotic relationship. But in this new relationship, they are fighting these amazing cosmic threats, especially Thanos, who appears frequently throughout the entire Starlin uh, period on Captain Marvel. And in that, in, that, in that period, we're introduced to Thanos as essentially a demigod who worships death, is in love with death, and death is given an anthropomorphic form. Sometimes shown as a beautiful ghostly one, other times literally as a skull, skull being wearing a hood in the Starlin uh, era. And Thanos is consumed to, to, to show his love for death by trying to wipe out, essentially, existence. And Marvel and Rick and the Avengers and, and Drax and other beings often find themselves trying to prevent Thanos from carrying mm-hmm. out his mad quest. In fact, that's, whole, that's Drax's whole reason for being. He was created to Go slay ahead, Thanos. Uh, well, he was just a, like an insurance salesman named Arthur Douglas, uh, who was vacationing with his family <laughs> in the desert of Nevada, driving back from Vegas, I think, and when Thanos' starship happened to land and killed all of them. Um, but then uh, Thanos' grandfather, I think it is, uh, the, the godlike being Kronos, was sort of a disembodied... Uh, uh, entity who's like a patron of Titan, uh, he resurrects Arthur Douglas and empowers him and gives him this monomaniacal desire to kill the being who killed he, Ar- him, Arthur Douglas, and his family. And so that's how Drax the Destroyer came to be. But isn't Moondragon his daughter? Yes. His daughter, Heather, was not actually killed. Yeah. She was, uh, you know, a mentor, was fo- Thanos' father and ruler of Titan, was following in Thanos' wake and happened to see this little girl lying there. Her parents dead, and uh, he adopts her and uh, takes her back up to uh, Titan and uh, puts her in the care of the priests of... Was she raised by the priests of Pama? I think she was. Uh, which I is believe a, you're right about you know, that. A sect that originated on the Cree homeworld. Yes. And uh, so she grows up to become quite a powerful uh, mentalist and martial artist and uh, darned arrogant to boot. Yeah. <laughs> 
yeah, she's one of the greatest egos in the Marvel Universe. Very entertaining to read. Uh, yeah, she sort of becomes part of the Marvel cosmic coterie, and uh, Starlin gets a lot of mileage out of her, too. She eventually becomes a member of uh, Warlock's Infinity Watch. Yes, and she'll, she'll appear. I mean, she even appeared in Daredevil for a period of time in the Bronze Age. Yeah. She's all over the place. Um, and again, it's another example of just... When an editor-in-chief like Roy Thomas has the insight and the perception to recognize, okay, i got a, a hot new talent here, and I'll, I'm going to let this guy go with it and see what he does. And we're all benefiting from that ever since uh, we look at what's going on with the movies. And I, I've just put up on the screen, just to jump back for a minute, I always, I'm always fascinated by how comics will capture cultural aspects of the time they're being published. So this is a confrontation when Carol Danvers is a security officer at Cape Canaveral with uh, Walter Lawson, who, of course, is Captain Marvell in disguise. And here's Carol speaking. You scientists treat security officers as either snooping villains or comic clods. And, of course, a female security officer is even more often to your amusing, open to your amusing jibes. But I am not amused. I'm sorry, Miss Danvers. This is Lawson speaking. But I have more important things to do than to deal with your professional conflicts. My what? I prefer you spoke more plainly. It's perfectly obvious. You're a woman. A lovely woman, in fact and be given a very masculine role in life. Naturally, psychological conflicts must arise when a beautiful young woman is asked to play a policeman. I don't consider this conversation ended, Mr. Lawson. And then she's thinking to herself, I miss thought balloons. You bet we're not finished, Walter Lawson. You're too tricky to be for real. So, I, <laughs> I, I just... Danielle, if she here, would, would be... Yeah, she'd be over seething. She'd be seething, yeah. She'd be tearing the room apart. But uh, again, it's just a fascinating snapshot of how, again, female characters are often portrayed, especially in the earlier, or this is actually the later Silver Age, but think about how Sue Storm was often portrayed in the Fantastic Four. It's, just, it's, it's a snapshot of a very different time. I mean, they, they, kudos to them making Carol like the strong security officer. And, and in fact, she'll later become exposed, and we'll, we, we do a, a quick checklist, to Cree powers. She'll later, later become Miss Marvel down the road, but she's also here being subjected to sort of the male-dominated, you know, patriarchal view of the role of women uh, in the workplace. I just find that a fascinating uh, image there. I just want a quick little uh, cultural snapshot. Now, Starlin's run, as I mentioned, it, it lays the foundation of much of the Marvel's cosmic universe, and he also really transforms sort of the place of, of Captain Marvell in uh, the Marvel Universe. Now, before we get to that, you mentioned the Kree-Skrull War before. Now, Captain Marvell played an important role in that. I just want to quickly elaborate on what his role was in the uh, Kree-Skrull War, if you might. Uh, well, he was the center of uh, well, a gambit by the Supreme Intelligence. You know, I mentioned earlier that... Uh, he had, the, 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 the intelligence had become convinced that uh, the Kree as a race had reached an evolutionary cul-de-sac, had begun to stagnate. And in order for the race to survive and thrive and continue to occupy its place of dominance among the stars, uh, the supreme <laughs> intelligence was convinced that they needed to jumpstart their gene pool. So he encouraged interspecies uh, breeding, for one thing. Um, but that was not popular with the populace, especially not the elite uh, pure-blooded blue Kree. Yes. Uh, so... Uh, the, the Supreme Intelligence had this idea that he, he saw humankind, earthlings, as very important in the, in the cosmic scheme of things. He saw their potential for well, diverse adaptations and evolutions and mutations and uh, their capacity for superhuman powers. Uh, and he decided he needed to uh, graft some of that human gene stock into the Kree. 
so uh, he reached out across uh, the uh, billions of miles to Rick Jones, of all people. Yes, and, uh, jump psychic. Start- yes, jump-started his evolutionary potential, gave him all these neat psionic powers. And uh, we learn eventually that uh, he had masterminded the bonding of uh, Rick Jones and Captain Marvell through the Negabands all along because he had wanted to take over Rick Jones and his evolutionary potential by first bonding him to a Cree, to a a Cree's mind and a Cree's, you know, since they're swapping atoms, I guess a little bit of the genetic structure would have rubbed off on him. So by conditioning Rick Jones, by being bonded to Captain Marvell, that would make him... uh, absorbable and uh, manipulable by the supreme intelligence. So this whole section of the Kree-Scroll War, I mean, this is, as we've said, a millennia-spanning conflict, but what is the battle of that war that we comic book fans have come to think of as the Kree-Scroll War, which is a storyline that ran in the Avengers back in the early 70s, namely issues number 89 through 97. Um, Roy Thomas, Neil Adams. mm -hmm. Um, Oh, yes, uh, Ah, Neil Adams and a few others. Both Sal Buscema. Both Buscemas. Yes. Um, so, yeah, lot, lots of, art, of uh, great artists working on that. So, so this, this conflict, which uh, embroiled uh, the Inhumans, and uh, it involved uh, the, the Vision learning some new things about his own yes. uh, ancestry. Mm-hmm. And it also cut, had the Avengers team uh, zipping across uh, galaxies uh, to, to, to be sucked into this uh, age-old conflict. And Captain Marvell was there from the very beginning of this story. And uh, so, so this whole segment of the Kree-Scroll War had to do with uh, the uh, Supreme Intelligence's plot to get hold of uh, a little bit of that uh, human uh, genetic voodoo. <laughs> and in the end, it was Rick Jones and his enhanced psionic powers that yes. uh, was this, uh, the downfall of the Supreme Intelligence and his Kree forces in this conflict of the Kree-Scroll War. Because Rick Jones summoned forth memories of uh, comic book heroes of his youth, and also of Roy Thomas's youth. Golden Age characters. Right, yep. old Golden Age timely yep. characters. Yep. Yep. The yep. Blazing Skull, most notably. Yep. Uh, and uh, uses them as his champions. And eventually he just, uh, he, 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 his powers reach such a crescendo, he's able to just freeze like an entire uh, space battle just in, in mid-void. Uh, That's right. So, yeah, yeah, Captain Marvel and Rick were very much central to that uh, whole story. My friend, I count on these supplemental moments. I'm honored. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in here doing what I can, Chris. Breathtaking. Oh, <laughs> yes, and, and hopefully breath-saving for you. Oh, my, please, my friend, I appreciate it. Now, we're going to talk more about, in some more detail, about some of Starlin's key moments and moments. This is more of an overview right now, but uh, Starlin only writes the character from issues 25 to 34 consistently, and... Then the other, other creators take up the helm. Uh, Scott Edelman, Al Milgram, uh, Al Milgram, excuse me, uh, Doug Monk, uh, Pat Broderick, good stuff. But the character is remembered for the, Starlin's imprint. Uh, and we'll talk more about that in some detail in a moment. Now, for right now, I wanted to address uh, some of the powers of Captain Marvel because they can get a little confusing. Because, again, as they tried to keep the book going, they, they kept doing different things to the, his costume, his powers, to try to improve sales. That's, that's what I gather from what I was reading. Um, so, again, Marvel originally was, again, just a, a standard, although highly trained and skilled Kree soldier, uh, stronger than a normal human, his, his wrist blaster and so forth. Then Zoe, as Murd mentioned, gave him the powers of flight, enhanced strength, teleportation, illusions. He loses, he loses the illusion power later. He gets the negabands. Uh, which, again, give him greater strength, durability. Like he can fight Namor and Thanos, for example, go to toe-to-toe and survive. Uh, he could fly at light speed. Uh, 
he could absorb solar power. There was a story uh, prior to when Starlin comes in where they do a tribute to the Shazam character. They have him fight a villain called Dr. Benjamin Savannah. Hmm. Ah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, as in Dr. Thaddeus Bodog Savannah, but this yes. is spelled S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H. Yes. And he has a daughter named Luann who becomes a recurring love interest for Rick Jones. Well done, sir. Do you want to elaborate further on what happens there? Or do you want me to take it? Um, it, uh, well, again, to save your voice, um, yeah, uh, Savannah, once, uh, 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 Dr. Savannah <laughs> is not an antagonist of, of Captain Marvel for long, actually, yeah. the, the two of them uh, reach an understanding pretty quickly, and Dr. Savannah does a little treatment on, uh, Captain Marvel, to, because uh, Rick Jones's uh, cell structure is starting to come unglued, because he can't retain his own life force and the, uh, uh, cosmically empowered life force of Captain Marvel. Right. So uh, he, uh, Dr. Savannah does something. He gives some kind of radiation treatment to Rick to reinforce him and, 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 and allow him to keep both his own energy and Captain Marvel's in check. And a side effect of that is that Captain Marvel then gets uh, the additional ability to absorb and redirect solar energy. Well put, sir. Well put. And we should also mention the, the negabands allow him to achieve interstellar travel. He can survive in the vacuum of space. He doesn't have to eat or breathe because of the bands. And we'll talk more about the negative bands later because they're going to play a key role in, in ultimately in Marvel's fate, uh, actually. Now, Marvel is, I think, one of the most interesting aspects of Marvel, and this is Strong's contribution, Murray, I know, I'm sure you love this, is when Marvel gains what's known as cosmic awareness. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to call up the image of that. Uh, Murray, do you want to explain who Eon is? Eon is what Zoe, you know, really mm -hmm. Ronan and Zarek were pretending to be. He is a cosmic being, a cosmic custodian, mm -hmm. who since time immemorial has been a custodian of <laughs> uh, the... the, the uh, He's been the one who's been charged with uh, selecting uh, a protector of the universe. Capital P, capital U, protector of the universe. <laughs> it is a title. It is a legacy. It's a mantle. It's been handed down over many, 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 many years. And he selects uh, the, the pink-skinned Cree Captain Marvell to be the latest bearer of that title. And uh, so he, he and so Eon, he, he sort of resembles this big... Uh, so he, like, like a big landmass. I have him here. He's like a, a head on a, on a planetoid. Big tentacular yeah. iceberg kind of. He's got one enormous eye and yep. uh, sort of a semi-humanoid face, a shock of brown hair on top of it. He's he's not really humanoid, but uh, uh, he bestows upon Captain Marvel this role and uh, gives him the aforementioned power of cosmic awareness, which is just sort of like heightened situational awareness. It allows him to be aware of things going on in the cosmos that pertain to whatever situation he happens to. So, yeah, and also he can anticipate the moves of an enemy, for example. He knows everything about his location. It's like a, like an ESP. Um, but the, the image I have on the screen, this is Eon speaking, our cosmic opera is completed. You now stand ready to fulfill a destiny chartered, charted billions of light years ago. <coughs> and then Marvel asks, what now, Eon? We go! There's like a flaming eye now hanging in space. Classic Starlin. Waited long, but you've proven worthy. May your star shine bright. And Eon convinces Marvel to kind of renounce like his militaristic upbringing and training. To become, instead of seeing himself as a soldier, as now as a protector uh, of the universe. And, and, and after this transformation, his hair is now blonde. The famous blonde hair rather than the, the white hair he had hmm. uh, in the uh, Silver Age. And... 
Marvel will use his cosmic awareness throughout the rest of his his, his career. It's it's one of his most powerful. Uh, I don't know if I call it a weapon, but it's just it's it's a, it's a talent he has that enables him to often be one step ahead of his opponents. Yeah. Uh, yeah. His son Janice Vell, who would later bear the name Captain Marvel, yes. had an even more powerful version of cosmic awareness at his disposal, and it drove him literally insane. Yes. So, you know, too much of a good thing, I guess. <laughs> the classic uh, Peter David story. Well, that's yes. That's, that's an episode in itself. The uh, Peter David Captain Marvel series is tremendous. It really was. Now I want to. Re- I'm going to take us through some uh, notable appearances and story arcs. For Anything else you want to add at this point, Mer, before we move on? Uh, not in, ge- in terms of generalities. No. Okay. Uh, so as we mentioned, he first appears in Marvel Superheroes uh, number twelve. We had that image on the screen earlier. And in Marvel Superheroes thirteen, when we first, when Carol Danvers is first introduced in the series as a security, aforementioned security officer at Cape Canaveral. Now, it's interesting in in the Overstreet. In 9.2 Near Mint Minus, issue 12, which is Marvel's first appearance, goes for $550. Issue 13, which is Carol's first appearance in Near Mint Minus 9.2, goes for $1,200. More than twice. Yes. What Marvel's own first appearance is. So it shows how important her character has become. <laughs> and of course, she is the current Captain Marvel. And as I mentioned, we're not going to really go into her or any, any other Captain Marvel in this episode. Um, but certainly, she's worthy of, of attention of our attention for her yep. down the road. Yeah, uh, as a supporting character for Marvel at this point, anyway. Yeah, so she immediately enters into a love triangle with uh, Captain Marvel and Una. Una. Yeah, Una is like his Shalabal and uh, Carol Danvers. Well put, like, like his Alicia Masters. Well put, my friend. Now, as you mentioned, Una will be slain by Yon Rog in issue eleven of the eponymous series. Mm-hmm. That's when Marvel also gets his powers from the Zoe. Uh, construct, so to speak. Yep. Series that that issue was written by Arnold Drake. Yes, yeah, so w- well done, sir. Yep. Well done. Another Again, one of those characters that Marvel rescued from DC. Yes, he used, he wrote Doom Patrol. I believe he did. He created Doom Patrol. Yes, and uh, Dead Man. Yes. So again, kudos to Roy Thomas and Stanley for giving all these sort of creators in their twilight years, giving them some work, um, and they should they deserve all credit for that. Uh, issue 16 is written by the late great Archie Goodwin, and Goodwin does something very important for Marvel's cosmic history because he introduces the notion of the the cast system of the Kree, the blue and pink uh, skin tones that Murd mentioned earlier, again, the Kree originally were blue, and as they expanded their empire throughout the galaxy, not like any, any imperialist w- would do, they, they mingle with the people they've subjugated, and out of that, that mixing you have the pink skin Kree, as they're called, and the caste system develops, and the blue Kree see themselves like, as like sort of the elite sort of founders of the Kree empire, and they look down their noses at the the pink-skin right. Cree. They are the patricians and the pink-skins are the plebeians. Well, good Roman analogy, Murray. Well <laughs> done. Boy, that gave me chills. I'm reading a wonderful biography of Julius Caesar right now as we speak, actually. Now, and in issue 16 is when they redesigned the costume that we were more familiar with. Uh, issue 17, we saw the image introduces the Negabands and Rick Jones. Again, they, they give Marv that Achilles heel or Rick Jones in here are now linked they can't occupy the same space at the same time. One has to be in the negative zone, and they clang the bands together, the other one, and then it appears on Earth. Eventually, they'll separate more than once, but they'll come back to it, and ultimately, they will separate for good in issue 50 uh, of the eponymous series. Go issue ahead, number 18. It's not please. in your outline here, but it's, uh, please, it's, please, it features please. the death of uh, Marvel's old foil, Colonel Jan Rog, 
and the explosion of the Kree Psyche Magnetron that eventually gives uh, Carol Danvers her Ms. Marvel powers. That's what, so in issue 18 is when she first gets exposed to that energy. That's right. Um, and then Miss Marvel will be introduced in the 70s, much time later much, on. Much, much later series. on, yeah. yeah. yeah this uh, yeah, Number 18 was published in 69. Ms. Marvel didn't come along until 77. Yes, late 70s. We'll, we'll, we'll give Carol Danvers her due uh, down the road for sure. Sure. And then, of course, issues 25 to 34 is the Starlin era. And, again, I'm quoting Roy Thomas here. He said, let Starlin be Starlin. And we're all the beneficiaries of that wise pretty move by Marvel's uh, second uh, editor-in-chief. Um, we mentioned Thanos has already introduced in Iron Man 55, and he'll be the big bad during Starlin's run. I'm going to call up some images here of the classic uh, Starlin uh, Marvel versus Thanos. Give me one moment here. Here we go. So here we have uh, the cover of issue 27 of the Starlin run. You see Star Fox and Mentor uh, in the foreground. Marvel's facing the Super Scroll, which is one of his perennial uh, uh, adversaries during the series. Again, Starlin took a character who they weren't sure what to do with, and he just he imbued his own sort of personal take on that character. And as the series progressed, you know, he was known, and this is, this is the image, this is the classic sort of Jim Sterling Captain Marvel image I have on the screen now. The blonde hair, the negabands, uh, you know, the, the famous uh, star symbol in the chest. Uh, and that was, I think, Leroy Thomas's idea. But Starlin, very personal work he brought. And I'm going to read a quote from him about his work on uh, Captain Marvel. And I should mention, Starlin was, was inspired by both Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko uh, as, as an up-and-coming artist. And you can see that the influence of both those artists in his work, especially when, when, when he kind of goes into Marvel's like, inner mind, the cosmic awareness. There's a lot of Ditko-esque uh, imagery that goes on there. I can see that, yeah. And I'm reading here from uh, Roy Thomas. At this point, Captain Marvel is going to rise or fall on Jim's vision. Except to keep an eye on the book, to rein Jim in if he was going too far, doing something that would get us in trouble with the comics code, I mostly became a fan and an admirer. It's always refreshing to read about someone in a position of, of authority, of managerial power, knows to step back hmm. and give the creators room to do what they do best. All too freaking rare in comics nowadays. Yes, So, and, and we all benefited from that. And Starlin... And by the way, I just read that quote from the American Comic Book Chronicles by Tomorrow's, their 1970s uh, volume. I can't emphasize enough. I couldn't have done this episode without Tomorrow's. Fortuitously, the, the, the December issue of Back issue number 93 is the all-captains issue. <laughs> and I have a copy of that at home myself. Yes, and that issue has a wonderful uh, retrospective on Captain Marvel in it, and it was fortuitous. It came out just as I was preparing for this episode. Uh... Wonderful research. Let me get, give the author credit here. Uh, Karen Walker did a wonderful job taking us through Captain Marvel's entire history. The 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 the, the Captain Marvel we're talking about, of course. This back issue also talks about, of course, Shazam as well. Ah, uh, yes. Murder right on the cover. Do you have this? Yes, I have a copy of that All at right. home. I figured you did. So I'm reading here from uh, Starlin's uh, thoughts on working for the character. He's talking here about Thanos. 
I had Thanos created before I started working at Marvel. He was part of my portfolio that I was taking around to get work. I had him in mind. I didn't have a complete story. It sort of got built as it went along. And Thomas is saying, I just felt Starlin was an exciting artist. He had these characters in Captain Marvel was Kree. And after the Kree scroll war, it made sense that all that cosmic stuff in, you know, that Starlin likes to do. So why not? It wasn't like Gil, meaning Gil Kane and I had any great direction we were going in that, just called it to be pursued. And neither did anybody else that had handled it since us. So if Starlin had this idea, we may as well give it a try. It did pretty well, actually. If you put Starlin on the book, there's no sense trying to push him too much into a path that he doesn't want to go. You put Starlin on there to let Starlin be Starlin. Enough said. Mm. Now, issue 29, as we mentioned, Eon grants Marv his cosmic awareness that we've talked about. And issue 31 is an important issue in the development of Thanos' character because they reveal that Thanos has this great passion for death that often goes unrequited, mm. of course. And they really go to that in the Infinity Gauntlet story. And in the 1990s, and in these issues, he becomes temporarily omnipotent because he gains control of the cosmic cube. First of a few times he would attain yes. godhood over the decades. And Murr, do you recall what he tries to do with the cube uh, at that point? Uh, well, he, he he instructs the cube to make him one with and master over all matter in the universe. Yes. So he becomes a god. Thanos is then rendered by Starlin as just like this yellow outline of Thanos' yes. visage against you know the, the blackness of space. He's not corporeal anymore. But somehow Captain Marvel is still able to uh, challenge him. Well, actually, and he actually he actually gets his whole Marvel gets his hands on the cube. Thanos turns into an old man. He's trying to like basically kill him on the spot, decay him to death. And Marvel, even as he's atrophying, destroys the cube. And Thanos' plot is foiled. I have on the screen now the cover of, Cap of Captain Marvel 29, probably the most iconic cover from the Thanos run, excuse me, from the Captain Marvel run under Starlin. And don't dare miss the big change in Marvel in the thriller we call Metamorphosis. He's coming your way, the most cosmic superhero of all. And classic image Marvel on this interstellar background. The star trail in his wake as he's flying. Blonde hair, somehow moving in the vacuum of space. And uh, Starlin, Engelhardt, all these, many of these creators have freely admitted they were experimenting with certain uh, drugs and hallucinogens uh, in the early 70s. And it's clear that that found its way into their work. I'm shocked. <laughs> and I'm not advocating drug use, especially for our younger listeners, but... It clearly benefited some of these stories because we got some dip between what, what they were doing in Doctor Strange and what they were doing in Captain Marvel and later with Adam Warlock, who we'll be talking about shortly. Uh, you're definitely entering the inner mind here in some of these stories, and there's definitely a psychonautical aspect uh, <laughs> to them. I like it. I figured you would, Bird. Psychonautical. Especially, especially the idea of cosmic awareness uh, and eon. Now, Bird, why is issue 34 so vitally important? All right. Now, this is in the Marvel's first history. This is the first Captain Marvel comic I ever read. I bought it back in the 90s, mm -hmm. as I mentioned earlier, because it's the first appearance of a villain who's been fairly important in other places in the Marvel Universe, Nitro the Exploding Man. Yes. So he's a disgruntled engineer who's contacted by a group of renegade Cree mad scientists mm -hmm. called the Lunatic Legion. <laughs> they experiment on him. They give him the ability to explode himself and reconstitute his body completely unharmed afterwards. So he's got a great deal of offensive power at his command. And they instruct him to steal a, an experimental nerve gas. 
uh, Captain Marvel, uh, well, he runs afoul of Rick Jones, who's going out on a concert tour at the time. Of course, remember, Rick is also a professional musician. Right, right. He's got an agent and everything. <laughs> and uh, so his tour bus crashes into the truck that uh, Nitro has commandeered. Uh, Rick uh, clangs his negabands together. Captain Marvel enters the fray against Nitro. And uh, he's during the battle, the uh, canister of nerve gas is opened. And uh, Captain Marvel knows that uh, many lives will be lost if he doesn't get in there and close that canister by hand, yes. which he does and then he collapses and that's where that issue ends it's sort of hinted that maybe this is will this be the death of Captain Marvel it's, it isn't at that moment no. it, is, it is the end of Jim Starlin's uh, tenure as writer-artist on the series for yes, a while. that's correct and I have Nitro on the screen right now for people to take a look at uh, not, not like a, an A-list villain in the Marvel Universe. No, but he's, he's a good B-lister, though. Yes. He's got a great power set pretty yes. distinctive visual and uh, he was important in the Civil War story yes, he was yeah, and he's a, he's a native of the bottle city of Scranton, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Shout out to our old friend Marty Devine out there, who is also a resident of Scranton. Outstanding, Murdy. Outstanding. And, of course, M- Marv's exposure to that carcinogenic nerve gas will, of course, prove ultimately be fatal. We're going to revisit that shortly when we talk about, of course, Marvel graphic novel number one. Now, Strong leaves the book after that, and... You still have top flight creators that come on the book, and they they try to pick up with what Starlin was doing. They don't they don't just abandon what Starlin was pursuing. Uh, they still have Marvel operating in space a, a lot. They still that try to maintain that grand cosmic mm-hmm. tapestry. Go ahead, Bert. Uh Well, just just uh, playing into the, the, the cosmic grandeur they're trying to maintain. Yeah. Uh, they they have uh, one of the first uh, post Starlin stories involves the Watcher actually uh, attacking Captain Marvel, thinking that he poses, he's believing he's mentally unstable. Watu intervenes yet again. Yes, in the most direct way he he ever has to to date. He actually physically attacks Captain Marvel, and uh, he's actually captured and put on trial for it by his own people. So we have the trial of the Watcher. (laughs) Any other comments you want to make about the latter uh, Marvel series? Um... Well, not until we get to the very end of it. Okay. I think that's coming up in your notes. Yep. Here, so. so issue 50 by Scott Edelman and Al Milgram, the great Al Milgram, mainstay inker and penciler uh, throughout much of Marvel's history. Yep, very important figure in yes. Marvel's cosmic corner as well. Absolutely. And uh, in issue 50, as I mentioned, they finally separate Rick and Marvel once for all. And this is my first exposure to the characters I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. Mm-hmm. Avengers uh, story. The Avengers. Are, remember, Marvel is like an honorary Avenger. He's helped them on more than one occasion. Right. He doesn't uh, gain official membership until no. he's dead, so he yeah. becomes a posthumous honorary yes, Avenger. But he's appeared in the book several times. Yes. And in this series story, they're fighting the super adaptable. Why don't you explain his, his power set? I think he's uh, a fascinating villain. Uh, well, he's an android. Yeah. Uh, originally, he just kind of looked like a big green composite of a bunch of different Marvel characters. Right. Um, but he had the ability to, uh, well, uh, adapt his uh, android frame to uh, any superhuman powers mm-hmm. or skills or even weapons around him. He could actually create, like, generate out of his own body mass facsimiles mm-hmm. of uh, other people's weaponry. Uh, so he's kind of like a one-man uh, evil Avengers. And in this story, thank you, sir, Marvel tricks the adaptoid into clanging negabands and ending up in the negative zone. So he takes the place of Marv so Marv can escape the negative zone and Rick doesn't have to go back into it. They're both now operating as separate entities. We should mention that one of the strengths of this series is that they really develop a, a relationship between Rick and Marv, as Rick calls him. And they become very close because they have to 
because they have to rely on each other. And of course, it can lead to tension at certain times. But it's, it's a very close sort of hero sidekick type of relationship. And Rick is even really more than a sidekick. I shouldn't even say that because Marv has to rely on him. Because if, if Rick, if Marv needs to come, come back into Earth to fight on the Megazone, Rick has to climb those Megabands together. But by issue 50, they, they ended that. And then uh, Doug, the great Doug Monk, one of the great Marvel writers of, of the Bronze Age and the Copper Age, we talked about him, we talked about Master of Kung Fu. He, of course, is the co-creator of Moon Knight. Um, he takes over the book with the, the great Micronauts penciler, Pat Broderick. And they take the book to its end in issue uh, 62. Mm-hmm. But then they continue the book into the volume two of Marvel Spotlight. Uh, they kind of wind up Marv's saga there. What do you want to say about that? Uh, well, it, it's a pretty interesting story, actually. It is. Um, so begin, it, it, it's, it's a, a legacy of Thanos yes. story arc. It begins in issue 58 of Captain Marvel, and, and it concludes in issue 2 of, of mm-hmm. Marvel Spotlight. And it invo- uh, Thanos has reprogrammed. You know, he's, he's dead at this point, yes. as we'll see when we talk about Adam Warlock. Thanos will have uh, shuffled off the mortal coil by this point. But before he went, he reprogrammed Isaac, who is the central supercomputer that Titan. controls and yep. coordinates everything yep. on the moon of Titan. And uh, so uh, Isaac has been gone rogue now. He's acting on Thanos' orders. He uh, creates, he like genetically engineers a bunch of lackeys for himself, including a, a, a guy named Stellarax, a uh, scary bad guy named simply Chaos, and also a, a female agent named Elysius. Yes. And Is she a titan? I, I don't... I want to say no. I'm, I'm unclear on her. Or she, either okay. she... Either Isaac created her out of whole cloth, mm. or she was some kind of spacefarer okay. who wandered around and happened to end up on Titan, and then okay. Isaac got hold of her and yeah. uh, drafted her. Uh, but anyway, uh, Marvel is able, uh, alone among uh, the lieutenants of Isaac and therefore Thanos, uh, Marvel is able to get through to Elysius and talk her out of these, this mad uh, campaign of revenge that uh, Thanos has launched them on. Uh, so she is, com- comes over to his side, and uh, uh, Captain Marvel and a couple of his friends, including Rick Jones, his girlfriend Gertie, and uh, Drax the Destroyer, uh, they are able to uh, you know, just defeat all of uh, Thanos and Isaac's minions and uh, get to Isaac's core processor and uh, wipe clean Thanos' uh, viral influence there and, uh, and make Isaac a benevolent uh, servitor to the, the people of Titan again. And uh, Elysius, right? Elysius... Elysius. I, I, I say Elysius. Uh, Elysius. That sounds more eloquent. Um, she becomes Marv's lover, and he hasn't had a romantic interest since Una. I mean, there was that Carol Danvers tension, but that was never that never really was culminated, as far as I recall. And really, because I think because Marv had always had to deal with Rick, he couldn't really have any kind of private life, essentially. And once he was, they were separated. The, the creators probably thought, well, now we can finally we can bring him, get him, have a romantic interest, and. Elysius provides that, and the storyline then ends with Marv retiring to Titan with his newfound love, and he's, he's going to go off, and it seems like he's going to have a happy ending, but that's going to change. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. And this brings us to what I consider Starlin's masterwork. Well, before you begin, please, sir, please, 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 please. I wanted to throw one more thing in there. I, um, I love your supplements, my there friend. There was one more issue of Marvel Spotlight after the first four that featured yes. Captain Marvel. That was number eight. It features art by Frank Miller. So that's right. Anybody out there who ever wanted to see Frank Miller draw a Marvel story, that's, that's the issue to track down. That was... And we should mention this is Marvel Spotlight Volume 2. 
when they uh, relaunched that time. Right, right. This is the issue, the, the, the volume that began in... Uh, late, very late 70s, I believe. Yeah, like the very end of the 70s, 79. Yeah. All right, now, Marvel graphic novel number one, people who were into comics in the Copper Age, the 80s, recall Marvel did a whole series of sort of magazine-sized graphic novels. Some of them are, are outstanding. Uh, in the Best of Marvel, the 75 years hardcover, let me pull that out so I can show that to the camera. Anyone who's a Marvel fan, if you don't have this, you owe it to yourself to get it. Uh, it's 75 of what many fans consider the, the top, most significant Marvel stories. And they have both in here, Marvel Graphic Novel number one, The Death of Captain Marvel, and Marvel Graphic Novel, I forgot what number it was, two or three, X-Men, God Loves, Man Kills. So I read this story, I've read it many times. I reread it just this past week just to have refresh on it. And just to give you the background, at this point, this is the early 80s, Starlin was working on uh, his, his creator-owned concept, Dreadstar, which you recall more was being published in Epic Comics, which is Marvel's creator-owned, uh, more adult line of comics they were doing uh, in the 80s. And Marvel decided they wanted to kill off Marvel and have a new character have claim the mantle of Captain Marvel. It would be the uh, African-American woman, Monica Rambeau. Uh, who will have what's her skill set? It's light spectrum. Right? Uh, yeah, she has yeah. the ability to convert her body into any form of uh, electromagnetic energy. Right. So, uh, by the way, God loves man kills Marvel graphic novel number five. Excuse me on that. Uh, mis misspeaking there. So they tell Starlin, "Look, we want to kill off Captain Marvel. We'd like you to do it." And they they worked out a deal where Starlin would, would get to do something he wanted with Dreadstar. In return, he agreed to to write this graphic novel, and. He said, all right, I, he said he, he kind of struggled with it first. He said, all right, he, he went through some different versions where Marvel died in like typical heroic fashion in battle. And then he said, you know what? None of those are working for him. And six months prior, his father had died of cancer. So obviously Strong's going through that internalizing and so forth. And he brought this idea to Shooter to have Marvel die of cancer. Not in battle, just he gets cancer and he dies. And he ties it into what you mentioned, Murd, about nitro and the gas canister back in issue 34. That now has enormous resonance. And Jim Shrew, to his credit, loved the idea. According to Starlin, a lot of Marvel's other editors didn't like the idea. They were poo-pooing it. Starlin and Shooter said, forget what they're saying. I love it. Do it. So kudos to Jim Shooter for, <laughs> for backing that idea. One on the plus side of his ledger. Yes. And Starlin then sits down and creates what I think is one of the most moving superhero Self-contained superhero stories I've ever read. I'm going to call up some images from it. Um, and I'm sure many of our listeners have read this story. I mean, it's been around since 1982. It's, it's always in print. Murd has uh, one of the uh, more recent uh, printings mm -hmm. of it. Yep. Courtesy of Wild Pig Comics, Kenilworth, New Jersey. 14 South Michigan Avenue. Thanks, honey. I appreciate that. <laughs> now, excuse me. The... Again, the genesis of the idea was what happened with Nitro and that nerve gas cancer, which Marvel had to seal himself with his hand to prevent it from killing all the people in the surrounding region. And in the course of the story, I'm going to call up an image here in just a moment. Marvel is retired on Titan, and he's with Elysius, and they're, they're happily together. He, he's, he's very close with Mentor and Star Fox, the other Titans. And 
they go out to Thanos' vast starship, the Sanctuary 2, because, and we'll talk about this, we talked about Adam Warlock in the last segment of our episode, uh, Thanos had fallen in battle and Warlock turned him to stone. And I have the image now, this is an iconic image, uh, beautiful Starlin artwork of Mentor, Star Fox, and Captain Marvel coming upon Thanos' petrified body, arms outstretched. And they're going to bring him back to the family crypt on Titan because Thanos is the son of Mentor. And while they're in there, some of Thanos' lingering uh, soldiers attack them. There's a brief battle. They, they, they make quick work of them. And Mentor, Mentor and, and Star Fox are, would you say they're demigods, essentially? In, in effect, yes. Yeah. I mean, they, they do carry something, well, not of the literally divine in them, but, uh, yeah, something greater than human. So, yeah, it's, it's their heritage from the Celestials who monkeyed yes. with uh, the eternal genetic code years ago. So, yeah, in a, yeah a demigod is not an inappropriate... And, and Thanos is certainly a demigod, uh, I would say. And, 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 again, the Titans, they're offshoots of the Eternals, as you said, correct? Right. So, and during the battle, Marv easily dispatches his opponents, but then he has this terrible coughing fit. And they take him back to Titan. They go to Isaac, the computer, their central, the, sort of the, the, the computer nervous system of their society. And they, they scan his body and they realize he has cancer, which, he, which has been slowly killing him from that nerve gas. And they realize that Marv's negabands are keeping him alive. They've been fighting off the cancer all these years. But they, they can't, at the same time, here's the catch-22, the negabands, while keeping Marv alive, are also make, preventing them from finding a cure for this right. cancer. It's repelling the cures they attempt as much as yes. it's repelling the cancer. So the story is really about Marv re- looking back on his whole life. Starlin does a wonderful retrospective on the whole Captain Marvel history, essentially, of this character. One of the most moving scenes is he goes to Earth to tell Rick, look, you've got to get checked out to make sure that you weren't infected because we were, we were, that's where we were in our symbiotic relationship. Rick is devastated that Marv has cancer, that he's dying. And there's a great scene where Rick goes to, like, all the great brains of the Marvel Universe. You know, Doctor Strange, Reed Richards, T'Challa, Wonder Man, Hank Pym, Tony Stark. goes, look, why would you guys cure cancer yet? Like, you have all these great powers. You you haven't cured cancer. And Strong's narrative talks about how they all can't come up with an answer to satisfy the give solace to this tormented youth. They all go to Titan to try to find a cure, a race against the clock. Marv is slowly deteriorating. He's thinking about his whole life. There's a great scene where he has to tell Eliseus that he's dying. It's powerfully done. The artwork by, I think some of the greatest artwork of Stone's career in this book. And I, I was written ironically, he had actually broken one of his fingers. Hmm. And he had to like tape the pen to like his hand while he was drawing and he and he says it, it, it again i don't have the eye for it but you can see it in the way the way the book is drawn like a, there's a lot of darks and shadows a lot of it's because of how he was sort of confined by uh what he was uh of his injury at the time um and to me this is one of the most moving super stories and, it, and it's a death that you feel the weight of it because when you take outside the costumes, the cause of grandeur, it's just, it's what so many families have gone through. Well, our CGS family has gone through, Jamie D. Mm-hmm. A loved one is dying of cancer and nobody can do anything to stop it. And ultimately people have to kind of, all the heroes come to pay their respects. There's a great scene where Spider-Man is overcome, he has to leave the room and he says like, I thought we were supposed to die from bullets and bombs, you know, not, not cancer. Uh, and 
my favorite, one of my favorite scenes is a scroll general comes to Marvel's bedchamber, and because he says, you know, you were our greatest opponent, and he gives him the Royal Scroll Medal of Valor, like their Congressional Medal of Honor, and he salutes him. Um, and uh, Rick is incensed because the Kree consider him a traitor. They won't, they won't even try to help him. Uh, and it's, it's, it's about letting go, accepting death, and what it does to the people left behind. And I, I can't, if you have not read this story, I, I cannot recommend it enough. I have here on the screen now the actual death of Marvell, where as he's dying, he goes into a coma. And then in his, co- uh, his comatose state, Thanos comes to him. <laughs> um, again, kind of establishing Thanos is outside the cosmic norm. Definitely doesn't apply to Thanos, death, essentially. Death won't even date Thanos. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And this, this great scene I have up, they do battle and, and Marv refuses to accept death and he stands for life, but ultimately accepts it. And Thanos introduces him to death who appears first as a woman. And Thanos says, she is the bridge to eternity. Her caress is peace. Do not fear her, for she is merely that which awaits us all. And then Marv says, it's not that I fear her. It's just that I no longer need the illusion. And, he, and he, Marv, it's, it's a great sequence of panels. He passes his hand over her face. She goes from a beautiful woman to a skull. And the next panel, then they embrace, and Marv kisses her. And then his heart stops beating. Um, and then I have up on the screen the memorial. This is a very famous image of all the heroes gathered around on Titan, the memorial to Marvel, and the Captain Marvel star on, 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 the, on the up in the atmosphere. It's a beautiful, beautiful uh, story. Mark, Mar- Mar- what are your thoughts on this? Death of Captain Marvel. Oh well, I, I echo most everything you said here, Chris. It's reading it on the meta level, as I, I do tend to read I would hope so. many things. <laughs> um, what, what Starlin is giving Captain Marvel here is something that very few comic book characters have the luxury of experiencing, and that is a quiet, dignified... Uh, normal isn't quite the word, but uh, conventional human, yeah. permanent demise... No, and uh, granting him freedom and surcease from the conventions of the superhero genre and the punishing cyclicality of same. You know, there's so many characters are forced to just live on over decades and decades oh, yeah. of time, being cast away and rebooted and resurrected and uh, twisted and turned and spindled and mutilated and <laughs> turned well, into so many properties. different things. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and Marvel himself uh, understands that better than many because, yeah. as you said earlier, Chris, this is a character that Marvel and its employees were trying many different uh, things to resuscitate, to keep valid and viable and saleable yep. uh, through the course of the 70s. And uh, perhaps uh, Jim Starlin didn't want to see this character whom he'd come to care for so much treated in that way. You know, this is a chance to allow him to break free of the genre conventions and uh, just uh, be laid to rest honorably and in and of in a way that's uh, very, very relatable for the readers. As you said, everybody reading this and listening to this podcast even now, uh, especially, uh, probably oh, knows yeah. somebody, you know, either firsthand or secondhand, who has suffered and died from cancer. You know, I, I like the uh, the panel in which Mentor relates to Marvel, the, the, the different names for cancer oh, yes. in the different societies. Yes, uh, we call it the inner decay. Your own Cree race has named it the Black End. Yeah, which which makes me think of a, a Jethro Tull song. And actually, Earthmen call it cancer. Yes, Earthmen do call it cancer. 
And just, just the multitude of quiet moments in the course of oh. the story. It's, he doesn't. It's, I'm glad Starlin uh, did not allow this to just uh, degenerate into another superhero, Donnybrook. And there is a little bit of that. There, there's kind of like a, almost like a parody, like a grotesque, yes, Thanosian yes, 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 parody yes, yes. of that at the end, when when yep. the the spirit of Thanos comes to him. You know, yep. this uh, the worshiper of death becomes like the the go between for death. He becomes yep. the psychopomp, the spirit guide for Captain Marvel. Of all the people he's met in his lifetime that uh, it's grotesquely appropriate yep. that it be Thanos that leads him to the end. And uh, Thanos is sort of indulging Captain Marvel by putting him, taking him through the paces of a superhero slugfest as the very last thing that uh, Marvel's consciousness experiences before the moment of death. And uh, as Thanos puts it in here, it's it's it, it, it's all just kind of it is kind of a ritual for it's for Captain Marvel's sake. Yes, and it's just a, the context he's familiar with. Give him this illusion yeah. of beating his greatest foes, yes. as, as, you know, because as Thanos said, death should never be easy; it must be earned. And that's it's perfect to the situation, and also perfect to Thanos's character. It's exactly the attitude that a worshiper of death would have. And I want to mention to our audience: uh, someday. I want to do, with, with full, uh, I hope with Merge's full participation, a full-on Thanos spotlight. Because if there's ever a character who should have one, it's him. Well, so, half the work for that is being done in this very episode. So. Yes, but he's, he's so important in so many different aspects of the Marvel continuity now that there's so much we can talk about with him just on his own. So, but yes, the story on a whole is just brimming with pathos and human feeling and, and very affecting. Yes, it was a bold move on Starlin's part. I'm glad Shooter supported him in doing it. But it's it's telling that uh, in all the years since 1982 when this story was published, even though we've been sort of teased a number of times about Captain Marvel's return, but it always turns out to be, you know, he's been resurrected temporarily by black magic as a zombie. He dies again, yep. Or he's been called forward in time from when he was still alive. Yeah. Or he's a scroll. That's, that's a famous that example. League Weeks miniseries, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but uh, Captain Marvel has... Re- you know, Marvel and its uh, various uh, cre- the creators in its employ have respected what Starlin accomplished in this story. You know, the, the old fan adage used to be uh, the only Marvel characters that stay dead are Bucky and Uncle Ben. Yeah. Well, the, the lie's been given to that years ago, thanks yeah. to the Winter Soldier. But yeah. now we might as well just insert Marvel into Bucky's place. Because, I would hope so. And it's uh, like I said, it's a sign of uh, the the. The creative achievement uh, that uh, Jim Starlin accomplished here and the respect that his peers have for same. That, uh, and I'm going to read a quote from, uh, from again, from tomorrow's so I can do this episode without a comic book feed. We've, we've talked about this book many times on the air by uh, George Corey, 1976-1986, a wonderful retrospective on all things comic book related uh, in that decade. And in the article about this period I'm reading here, this is Starlin's words. I just went back and looked at it and said, oh, that'll give, that'll give him cancer, meaning what happened with Nitro in issue 34. And originally the idea wasn't cancer. I came up with about four different plots, which I never showed to anybody because they were just the standard, oh, he dies heroically after a bomb and had been done before. The Doom Patrol had blown themselves to pieces recently, and there were other heroes who had died heroically. I just didn't want to do that. My own father had passed away maybe six months before of cancer. And that's what keyed it in. It was just cheap therapy on my part. So, and he talks here also about how Shooter supported him, whereas other editors were dubious about the whole concept. Again, ladies and gentlemen, 
if you have not read this story, don't think. Go out, find one of the many printings of it, and in in most cases, I guarantee you will find it extremely moving. You don't even have to know a lot about Captain Marvel to appreciate. Because when I read this story, the only kind of Captain Marvel story I'd written read at that point was issue fifty. That's all, and and it's still. You know, as a, as a young kid, it still floored me, and, and now as an adult, it has even greater resonance. Yeah. I had much the so, same experience. Yeah. The only Captain Marvel issue I'd ever read, appropriately enough, was number 34, yeah. which is actually reprinted in this ah, yes. uh, version of, of, of the reprinting. And the last image I want to show here before we move on to the final segment of our episode is there's a nice uh, shot I found of all of the different Marvel Captain Marvels. I just want to touch a little bit about upon the as soon as I can find out the legacy of this character because Captain Marvel has a hell of a legacy mm-hmm. now. No pun intended. Uh, indeed, yeah, that, right. No pun intended. Indeed, Merck. Uh in the Marvel universe. Here we go. Now, so here we see the Starlin Captain Marvel, uh, the Monica Rambeau Captain Marvel is now called is it Photon or Spectrum? Uh, it was Photon. It was also Pulsar, but Pulsar. It, is, it is now Spectrum, okay. yes. Janice Vell, who Alicia was so lonely after his, the death of her lover, she took some of his uh, genetic material and basically created a son out of this genetic material, and that's became Janice Vell, um, who's got his own history we can talk about. Uh, in the future. Oh, yes. He's dead now, I believe, correct? He's been dead for some time. Yeah. yeah nobody has so far cared enough, tragically, to uh, bring him back and do anything with him. But the Peter David series from the 2000s, uh, Chris Cross, I think, was the artist in a lot of that, uh, is immensely entertaining, uh, poignant. It really ties into a lot of the history we've been talking about. Uh, Murd mentioned how what happens to him because of his access to cosmic awareness and so forth. I can't recommend it enough. And then we have also this image, of course, Carol Danvers, who also gained her own Kree powers back in issue 18. She later become Miss Marvel. Uh, and now, of course, she has taken on the mantle of Captain Marvel herself, and she's got her own history we can address uh, mm-hmm. in a future episode. So, and it'll close the comment out on Captain Marvel, my friend. Um, just uh, one more recommended please, please. read. You know, well, my favorite of the, the aforementioned uh, teaser false resurrections of Captain mm-hmm. Marvel uh, is actually from the 90s. Uh, it's, uh, it's from Cosmic Powers Unlimited, number one. Huh! One of those 64-page quarterly anthologies yeah. that Marvel was so high on for a while. I remember those, yeah. Um, so Cosmic Powers Unlimited, number one. This is a backup story uh, written by Ron Lim with art by uh, – no, I'm sorry. Written by Ron Mars, art by Ron Lim, inks by Terry Austin. Oh, wow. So very pretty to look at. Um, it, it's just a quick backup story, but it's Thanos uh, in a private moment uh, going to uh, – uh, well, he uh, resurrects Captain Marvel briefly, very briefly. Mm-hmm. He is in possession at that time of the reality gem. Just mm-hmm. that one gem, not the entire gauntlet. But uh, he calls back Captain Marvel, and the two of them have a quick little dialogue, in which uh, you know the, the the two characters' mutual understanding, you know, as uh, friends, foes, frenemies, mm-hmm. 
just uh, fellow uh, riders of the cosmic current of fate, if you will. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, Thanos tells Marvel he's brought him back to life as just a display of his power, and Marvel says, "Oh, come off it, Thanos! You you brought me back here, but as another one of your uh, little self defeat trademark self defeating strategies, you want me to talk you out of using the reality gem badly." And so, okay, I'm here. Don't do what you have planned to do. Now, please just send me back to the void. I was at peace there. Thanos, uh, the two of them come briefly to blows, and Thanos ultimately says, Bah! You know, you spit on this gift of life I give you. Go back to the beyond, and Marvel disappears. But then Thanos carefully puts the reality gem back in his little display yep. case, doesn't use it for whatever ill design he was conceiving, so Marvel really did talk him out of it. Well, one of the things about Thanos' character, and Adam Warlock addresses this as well, is that. Thanos seems to lay, in his machinations, he seems to lay pitfalls for himself mm -hmm. that will ensure ultimately his schemes don't succeed. And this Which, is just one more tiny little but yeah. uh, you know, instructive example of, of this quality of Thanos' psyche. So, yeah, it's a good, a good little story. It's uh, you know, stuck with me over 20 years, so it, it must be worth something. Good tip, my friend. Thank you very much. All right, Mer, we're going to move on now to the final segment of this uh, cosmic epic. Your boy, Adam Warlock. All right. If I may. Okay. Born to be Earth's man of the future. <laughs> then forced to abandon his native world because of his alien ways, he walks the stars seeking life. Gifted with ultra strength, paranormal perceptions and reflexes, the power of levitation and the curse of a vampire soul gem, he stands uniquely alone among the heavens. Stanley presents the power of Warlock. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're not watching this on video, Murr did that from his head. <laughs> he did not recite that from text. He just yep, spat it out in sonorous tones. It's not written on this legal pad I'm holding in front of me. I, I, I'm serious. It's not. <laughs> well, there's the legendary legal pad. Mm -hmm. Well done, my friend. Well done. It's just stirring little introductory blurb that he, that he had in the, on the masthead of every issue of his solo series. All right. Now, uh, Adam Warlock has a... Again, we're talking about Starlin here because Starlin will not create Warlock, just like he didn't create Captain Marvel, but he'll really put his imprint on the character. I and mean, when people think about Adam Warlock, they think about Jim Starlin. Now, but let's give the other creators their due. Warlock first appeared in the Silver Age. Now, Murd, what was his, his uh, moniker at that time? He was called simply Him. And who was Him? <laughs> <laughs> Him was a synthetic being, uh, you know, not like a synthetic in the sense of the vision. He wasn't an android or anything right. like that. He was an artificially created organic human, but uh, with a number of improvements made. He was created by a cabal of uh, sinister scientists operating out of a secret base called the Beehive. Eventually, they would become known as the Enclave. Right. Uh, their names were Jerome Hamilton, Maris oh, Morlach, Carlo and Zota, and <laughs> Vladislav Shinsky. Oh, you got to watch that Shinsky. <laughs> oh, that Slugworth, he was the worst. No. Fantastic. Uh, okay, so anyway, these four guys, and uh, the, at other times, uh, you know, these characters kept coming back in the Marvel Universe. Uh, so there were other scientists that would occasionally join their mm -hmm. ranks, but those were the founding four, if you will. They engineered this being, and uh, their intention was simply and sadly predictably to help them take over the world. Uh, but this ideal, perfected human being, you know, this man-made Adam, uh, you know, which is appropriate even before it was given to him as his official given name, um, he sensed their innate moral corruption. 
and uh, some, something in him rebelled against uh, the, the plans they had for him. He was kind of simple and childlike mentally at first. Because he had no frame of reference for a human yeah. experience. Yeah, as, yeah. as one would expect a being who yeah. was just literally born yesterday right. to be. Uh, so he uh, flees his creators almost immediately and uh, uh, finds his way to the stars. And this is first appeared in Fantastic Four 66, 1967. So this is a Lee Kirby creation. And I have on the screen right now the the Bronze Age visage of Warlock when he becomes Warlock. So he, brief, he, he escapes the, the Enclave, as Murd mentioned. He then shows up in Thor 165 and 166, where, again, because he has no frame of reference for human experience or maturity or anything like that, he senses he needs a mate. So he decides to abduct Lady Sif. Thor is unhappy about that, so a Donnybrook ensues. He, Thor, you know, regains Sif. And him retreats to his regenerative cocoon, which is what he'll do when he's been injured or, you know, is in physical peril. So we want to explain anything about the cocoon, just its, its place in all this? or yeah, It's just a natural part of, uh, of Warlock's life processes. Yeah. It's, I think the first time we see him in Fantastic Four 66, he does emerge right. from such a pod. And he, it's sort of like an insect chrysalis. He just yeah. forms it around himself uh, when he's been badly damaged or when he just needs to withdraw from reality after some major emotional crisis. And he always emerges a little different and a little better than he was uh, when he went in. Uh, so that's, it, it sort of marks the major transition. And various powers will appear manifest mm-hmm. differently from each time you merge right. from them. Yeah. Right, it's, it's, it's similar to um, like the uh, diapausal self-healing processes of <laughs> certain invertebrate species on Earth. And Warlock, uh, well, he's still called him at this point in, in terms of the, the, the publications. And we're going to fast forward a few years to 1972, so we're well into the Bronze Age. And... Roy Thomas decides to bring back the character, and he's reintroduced in Marvel premiere number one. This is by Roy Thomas, and is, is, is one of his favorite collaborators, the great Gil Kane. And Kane puts, as a tribute to, to the Fawcett Captain Marvel, the lightning bolt on the tunic of Warlock, which, which uh, Stardom will later dispose of when he, when he takes on the character. Mm-hmm. And he's called Warlock by the High Evolutionary in Marvel premiere uh, number one, you want to you want to expand upon that a little bit more. What goes on there with Counter Earth and so mm. forth? And, okay. Yeah. All right. So the High Evolutionary is a human scientist who yeah. specializes in tinkering with the process of evolution. Right. He's sort of mastered it, and he's uh, evolved himself to a godlike state. So he's kind of like the benevolent god that uh, this uh, man-made Adam has been seeking. Yes. Uh, and he's uh, he first tried to get himself an Eve by attract, attacking Sif. Right. That didn't work out. So now uh, here, here he finds himself his own uh, like sci-fi Yahweh in the half evolutionary, <laughs> who has been uh, compl- he's been puttering with this uh, experiment of his in creating a completely new planet Earth, like a duplicate of planet Earth uh, in a geosynchronous orbit on the opposite side of the sun right, from right. actual Earth in the Marvel universe. So he, he he's the high evolutionary is powerful enough at this point. He is quite godlike in that he can actually take space debris, form a planet-sized mass, and also create life on it. You know, enough to... He, he creates, like, a whole human race 
on yes. this counter earth of his. And so this is his little Garden of Eden. His, uh, pl- his so if we think but of the Garden of Eden. A Edens, serpent enters that garden. Yes, it does, in the form of uh, one of uh, the high evolutionary's earlier experiments back on normal earth, the man beast, who is a super evolved wolf. Who just sort of instinctively? He's one of the, the new men, essentially. Yes, right? and yeah. the worst of the new men. Yes, he wants to corrupt everything. He's just got this instinct to mess with his creator's grand design and uh, corrupt it any way he can. So he is the Satan figure of this little drama, and a drama it is because, as you have in your notes here, Chris, uh, Roy Thomas was explicitly inspired by Jesus Christ Superstar yes. to create this allegory for the Jesus story, using Adam Warlock and High Evolutionary and the, this other cast of characters that he brings to the table. And uh, in Marvel premiere number two is when he gets the actual moniker Adam Warlock. He's befriended by some typical Marvel Universe, like, sort of counterculture youths of that Mm -hmm. time period. Flower children. Yes. And they say, well, in our world, everybody has two names. Your name now is Adam Warlock. And that's where he gets the name. And basically what Thomas and Kane uh, and other artists have this sort of mini epic they do about Counter-Earth, which runs through the power of Warlock... One through eight, so he gets his own title after Marvel premiere, uh, number two, and then the story is finished in Incredible Hulk 176 through 178, where they bring in uh, the Hulk of uh, the original Earth, who goes to Counter Earth, and he ends up helping Warlock. And also on Counter Earth, there are different versions of characters we know on the original Earth. So there's a there's a heroic Victor Von Doom mm-hmm. and a Reed Richards who transforms into the villainous brute. That's right. I think we talked about that in our FF uh, Bronze Age spotlight. Actually. We may very well yes, have. I'm pretty sure we had. And Warlock leads a campaign against the Man Beast, who's also masquerading as the President of the United States of that of that <laughs> world, if I remember correctly. And ultimately, he defeats the Man Beast. He actually devolves the Man Beast, the other the other renegade new men, back into their original animal right, form. This is apparently one of the powers of the Soul Gem, which you know, we, we forgot to mention. That's please go, sir. Go yes. Ahead. Uh, so I uh, mentioned that High Evolutionary gave it to him. Right when Warlock first falls in with the Evolutionary, and uh, the Evolutionary appoints him protector and redeemer of this little yeah. experimental Earth of his. Uh, he hands him, uh, oh here, take this uh, magic jewel that I happen to have lying yeah. around my laboratory. I found it someplace. Use it. So he gives it to Warlock, and the Warlock typically wears it on his forehead as an adornment. It's uh, um, similar to the, uh, t- I-, I call it the tilak, but I think there's probably another word for it. It's uh, that, that uh, forehead adornment uh, seen in uh, members of the Hindu faith. Yes, I don't know the, I don't know the term for it. Yeah, the, the, the little dot up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, it's this green uh, sort of ovular gem, and uh, it uh, has, a th- it's called a soul gem. This is the first time we hear any mention of any kind of cosmically powered gem yes. like this. We eventually learn that there are others, but uh, for the time being, it's just the one. And uh, it has powers over the spirit, the life force, the soul. Um, and eventually we learn that it uh, is uh, not an entirely benevolent presence in Warlock's life. It seems to hunger for uh, the souls consume, of living yeah. sentient beings. And it, it, it sort of whispers nasty little predatory thoughts into Warlock's And when Warlock mind. consumes the soul, obviously it kills the person, their physical body, their corporeal form. Well, you know, their body is still alive, but it, technically in a vegetative I'm sorry, state. In a vegetative in, state. In yes. every other respect, they're, they're dead. But yes. he, he now has the memories. He's in a sense, tormented because he has the memories uh, and knowledge and histories of these people now in his head. Yep, which now dwell inside this little pocket universe we eventually learn that exists within the gem. The soul world. And right. we, we should mention that uh, Warlock, especially when Starlin takes over, is an extremely troubled, tormented character. Uh, this is not like a just like a 
giddy, blissful, spacefaring sojourner. I mean, this is this is a character who, 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 who has a real crisis of, of, right. of faith, of conscience, of identity. He's not even as fun-loving as Marvell. No. <laughs> so we'll talk more about that in a moment. Now, I'm going to read a quote. Anything else you wanted to say before we move on to Starlin? Oh, no, just uh, proceed, please. Yeah. So, because again, so so as Adam mentioned, our Adam mentioned, Adam Warlock <laughs> defeats the Man Beast, and he, and Victor Von Doom, the heroic Victor Von Doom, actually sacrifices himself in that campaign, and then Mar and uh, Marvel Warlock then leaves Counter Earth to journey among the stars, and that's the last you see of him for a little while, because uh, again, his series was short lived. They finished that up in the Incredible Hulk, and then in the latter seventies, Starlin left Marvel over a creative uh, conflict over Captain Marvell, but he comes back, and I'm quoting here again from George Corey's wonderful comic book, Fever. Roy and I talked, this is Starlin speaking, and I agreed to come back and do some more work for Marvel, and he asked me what I wanted to do. So that night I went through this box of comics I had in the apartment, and there was this Gil Kane, Adam Warlock story, and I went, this is the guy I want to draw. Look at that outfit. I didn't think about the lightning bolt at the time, which I quickly got rid of, because what a pain that was to draw. Hmm. But then when I actually sat down and started plotting out the story, I realized that I picked a character who was basically where Captain Marvel was already. I had taken Captain Marvel and turned him into Warlock. I liked transitions. So I had to think of where he would go. My own particular psyche was pretty damaged at that point for a number of different reasons. So the idea of turning him into a suicidal, paranoid schizophrenic seemed like a really good idea because I had a lot of raw material to work with there. It says <laughs> that he laughs as he was saying this. Now, oh, such acute self-awareness and self-diagnosis. <laughs> <laughs> so, I put on the image on the, the screen here, and self-medication also. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here you're going to see the image of Warlock issue nine. So, Starlin, what happens is Starlin takes over. They put Warlock in Strange, of Ta Strange Tales one seventy eight because they had restarted that book in the Bronze. You recall that Brother Voodoo was introduced oh, in the, during that period as well. And he, Starlin's Warlock story appears in Strange Tales 170 to 181. And then they restart the Warlock book. I have the cover here, classic Starlin image, issues 9 through 15. And this is all collected now. Murd, if you could hold up your trade for the, the camera. Warlock by Starlin. Yeah. It's got those 11 issues plus a couple of others that we'll no doubt mention shortly. Absolutely. And basically, as he just said in the quote, he reinterprets the character applying sort of the cosmic sensibilities he ex was exploring in the Captain Marvell book when he was doing it. And it's also certainly in keeping with sort of, let's say, the, 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 I don't know, the cosmic philosophical zeitgeist of 70s popular culture. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I think the, that's a fair uh, statement. The mind expansion and the, yeah. uh, well, the exploration of the inner depth, all, all things that are characteristic of the interests of the uh, well, solipsistic me generation of the yes. 70s. Psychonautical exploration. There's uh, that word again. I love so, it. I know you love it. Now, Warlock in the story. So, and we'll talk more. But we'll talk about Warlock's power shortly. He's he's a tremendously powerful being. Um, he's traveling through the stars, and he ends up getting in a confrontation with a being known as the Magus. Murd, would you like to explain? As best I can. Um, so yes. Look, uh, look at that afro. Yeah. Wow. Oh yeah, that's... I got the image up on the screen. Far out. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so he learns of the Magus' existence. Or Magus, very Yeah, right. In the very first, uh, yeah, the, the plural, plural is uh, Magi, but mm. uh, singular Magus. Thank you, sir. Um, uh, so yes, uh, he, he learns of the Magus' existence in the very first Starlin issue, and uh, when he's... Uh, 
he, he tries to rescue a young girl who's being persecuted by agents of the Universal Church of Truth. You know, this uh, basically the evil empire, but with a religious bent. Yes. You know, it's the, the, the empire from Star Wars, except instead of the Nazi empire, it's more like the early Catholic Church. Yeah, and, and they inspire religious zealotry among their followers yep, and so forth. Definitely fond of the inquisitional tactics. Yes. Um, so uh, the, the, he learns that this being called the Magus is the head of this group, mm-hmm. and uh, he very quickly discovers that the Magus is, is a being with a very intimate, close connection to himself. Yes. In fact, the Magus is himself. Yes. It's a, a future version of himself who undergoes some uh, traumatic experiences and is uh, uh, dragged kicking and screaming from reality by a being called the Inbetweener. He's held prisoner in the Inbetweener's realm betwixt and between <laughs> identifiable planes of existence, helpless to do anything but sit there and stew and fret and uh, think back on past existence, uh, his past experiences and be driven into and be galvanized by madness. And then he's catapulted back in time some 5,000 years years, and uh, he emerges with new purpose, immediately conquers the first race that encounters him, who worship him as a god, and uh, from there he builds this uh, star-spanning religious empire called the Universal Church of Truth, and he turns purple for some reason and gains an afro and becomes the Magus. <laughs> so, a white, a frosted white afro. Yes. It's like an afro puff. Yes. And so the, the short version is Magus equals evil Adam Warlock from the future. And he's driven insane by the soul gem, is he not? Uh, the soul gem certainly didn't help. Yeah. So, and in this this story, because the, this the, the strange tales and the, the, the eponymous series, it's all one st- saga essentially. Um, and in the story, Warlock finds two allies, who one is there clearly there for co- co- comic relief because Warlock is a pretty heavy character. He's not you know a fun loving. So that's Pip the troll. Who I'm going to one of Strawn's creations. I'm going to bring him on screen here in just a moment. Yep, he comes on the scene in Strange Tales number one seventy nine. So almost immediately. And this is a classic, <laughs> classic Strawn image of Warlock and Pip at a bar, and Pip is the stogie hanging from his mouth, almost like a like a troll version of Jack Kirby. The way. Uh, Stalin renders his face. Interesting observation. And uh, he's, uh, you know, cavorting with some barmaid, and Warlock is looking somber and grim as he holds his, his stein uh, at the bar. But, hey, Adam, what's wrong? But he becomes, like, a very loyal, fun-loving, mischievous sidekick to Warlock. And the other key supporting character here is someone many people are going to be familiar with is Gamora. Yep. And I love Strahlin. Strahlin drew beautiful women. I love his interpretation. Draws, I should say. I love his interpretation for the classic little green netting outfit. Oh, my lord. The neckline that goes yeah. all the way down to her waist. Yes. And Gamora, of course, is an agent of Thanos. So she is. Yes. yes. You want to talk about her a little bit? Or? Happy to. Yeah. yeah. Yep. She shows up in the third issue of War of uh, Starlin's run. Mm. And, yes, she's known as the most dangerous woman in the galaxy. Yes. Personally trained by assassin. Thanos to yeah. be his agent. You know, mm. As you say, his assassin. Mm. Um, and... Uh, uh, she is a member of a pacifistic race, the Zen Huberis, <laughs> who were exterminated by the Universal Church of Truth. Mm-hmm. Or at least that's the first version of how they die, because you know, the Universal Church of Truth, in the course of this story, is retroactively wiped out of history. Mm. Um, but anyway, uh, she alone survives, and she alone is adopted by Thanos and taken in as his ward and uh, trainee. And uh, much, much, much later, we learn that she's actually Thanos' offspring. That's right. 
This is well. That's it, it's made very explicit in the Guardians of the yes, Galaxy movie. But, yes. Uh, so yeah, if you're wondering where that character. Well, Thanos came from. had many children. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> he was quite bountiful. Yeah, sowed his wild oats. You know, for yes. one so opposed, <laughs> so fond of death, he uh, yeah. spread a lot of uh, new life throughout the, yes. the cosmos as well. But yeah, that that's all not established. Um, via retcon until much, much, much later. Yes. At this point, uh, Gamora is nothing more than Thanos' agent. But once she learns about Thanos' genocidal intentions, yep. she will side with Adam Warlock. And, and really, it seems she has unrequited... She has feelings for Adam Warlock, but he doesn't seem to return, at least initially. Um, am I correct in saying that? I, I think so, yes. Yeah. But it, it takes a long time for those to come out also. Yeah. She doesn't have that much time to develop, contemplate, or express no. those feelings in this, you know, little thirteen-issue uh, opus. That, and we uh, we should mention. That, I'm glad you brought that up. That this is this is only thirteen issues, but a lot happens here that has long-standing repercussions for Marvel's cosmic history, and that's that's something to mention. Now, in the course of the story, would you explain? Because I think it's fascinating. What does Warlock do in terms of time travel that makes him aware of his own imminent death? Like, what? Can you explain that to the audience? <laughs> that, that's like, that's like the, 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 the linchpin of this whole story. The teacher in you is coming out here, Chris. Yes. <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah, so uh, Pip, Gamora, and uh, Warlock uh, go together to challenge the Magus. Yes. Uh, because Thanos has, you know, we, we don't know just yet that Thanos is pulling Gamora's strings. Yes. But uh, he perceives that Magus has a threat to his own plans. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the two of them, they, they all challenge the Magus. And uh, Warlock learns about what's going to happen with him, with the in-betweener mm -hmm. and all of that. Uh, so uh, eventually he gains the opportunity to commit cosmic suicide. Uh, he is able. He's, he's projected uh, some a, a brief span, maybe two years into the future. Uh, is it Thanos who helps him to do that? Uh, yes, Thanos yeah. developed a time machine. Yes, it's that's on, correct. It's on board the Sanctuary too. Yeah. His uh, his base ship. Because they're, uh, they're, they're allies, at least on the surface at this point, Warlock and Thanos. Right. As right. they will be on more than one occasion throughout their yep. history. Their first attempt to take yeah, down the Magus yeah. fails miserably, mm. and Thanos has to teleport in and rescue them all. Yeah. Uh, so uh, then uh, the Magus uh, realizes what they're up to, and uh, personally leads a strike against Thanos' ship. Mm. But then uh, Warlock jumps through the time portal, sending himself uh, roughly two years into the future, mm -hmm. where he sees himself in the wake of some mm -hmm. uh, major battle or other, uh, lying there thoroughly despondent, wailing about how everything that's ever mattered to him is dead or destroyed, and uh, he, he welcomes death's embrace to take him out of his misbegotten existence, realizing that uh, his destiny, well, is, lies apart from that of the rest of existence. Um, but, uh, but then the Thanos, uh, Thanos, the warlock from the past grants the wish of this, of his future self, and uh, you know, he, he's dying anyway. He sucks he uses the soul gem to suck his own future self's soul into the soul gem, thus preventing Warlock from ever getting the chance to become the Magus. Magus yep. So that uh, uh, breaks uh, the chain of fate right there, mm -hmm. the, the, the loop of history. And uh, coming back to uh, the point from which he departed, Warlock finds that uh, the Magus is uh, fading away, all of his uh, lackeys are fading away, and the mm -hmm. Universal Church of Truth retroactively never existed. The matriarch of uh, this... You yep. know, you know, the Magus' uh, number right-hand woman uh, return is, has been returned retroactively to her former life as a prostitute. And um, so uh, all is more or less well. And Thanos is rubbing his own hands because, little does anyone know, the Magus was actually a champion of life. 
that uh, his role, in, you know, yeah. to, he may have been this great cosmic conqueror and despot, but uh, he was also uh, destined to challenge Thanos uh, as a champion of death and take him out. So this is something that Thanos uh, had an inkling of, but did not share with any they of the other characters. Him from the board, essentially. Yes. So Thanos, in you know, duping everyone else into thinking they've eliminated this great evil, which indeed they technically have, since Magus was such, they have, in so doing, unwittingly allowed a greater evil, a clear playing field, to dominate and exterminate. And that will lead to the climactic finale of this saga, where so the Warlock title will be cancelled after issue 15, but then a couple years later they give Starlin an opportunity to finish his story in Avengers Annual 7 and Marvel 2-1 Annual 2. These are 1977. I have on the, the screen now, just a, I think a classic image of sort of Warlock soliloquies. Was it also revealed to me that he whom I thought an ally was in truth a betrayer, a herald of anti-life, ultimate death? We're referring to Thanos. Did not these same fates tell me in my sleep now I was the chosen champion of life, the evil titan's natural foe? For I am the savior, the godslayer, the demon, the avenging hand of light, Adam Warlock. And he has a grimace on his face as he contemplates the situation. I mean, there's a, throughout the Warlock history, there's a lot of these moments where he has these Soliloquies of just anguish over sort of his lot mm. uh, in the universe. So in, in the Avengers Annual 7 and Marvel 2 and Annual 2, which are all Starlin, the uh, scripting and the penciling, Thanos is trying to destroy the sun as an offering to death, his lover, to and wipe out the human race. And the Avengers, Thing, Spider-Man, Captain Marvel, and Adam Warlock all band together to try to stop Thanos... Uh, from doing this, let me bring up an image here. And ultimately, what Merb was referring to before, that moment in time where he sees his future self, it circles back to that. You see it happen again. Yep. Warlock from the past shows yep. up in the middle of this conflict. And this is uh, the, uh, the version of himself that he sees. Uh, the, the warlock that has been felled during this battle yeah, in these I, two I animals. had the image of the scene where Thanos... Basically kills Warlock. He, dis he disposes of him relatively easily. And as Warlock is dying, as Murd mentioned, that switch happens, and M Warlock then dies. And go ahead, do you want to say something? No, no, continue. And he had Pippin and G Gamora had also already been Pippin had been reduced to a vegetative state by Thanos, which was probably one of Thanos's little traps for himself because he, he knew that Warlock would be enraged by that, and he also killed Gamora. But before they die, Warlock brought them into the soul right. gem. He finds them both as they're dying. And uh... and then after his Thanos smites him, he enters this gem, and they're in a utopia, the soul world. And all the people that this, the gem had also consumed, they're there too, but it's a utopian state, and everybody's happy. Mm -hmm. It's the only point in Warlock's many existences he's when he's really unambiguously, yeah. unconflictedly yeah, happy. But Thanos is still out there, and... Battling the Avengers and Spider-Man and Captain Marvel and and Captain Marvel, by the way, again, there's that link between Marvel, Warlock, and Thanos. Marvel witnesses Warlock witnesses Warlock's death. He was the only one who does, if I remember correctly. Um, and it is he who delivers the eulogy. Then. That's correct. And then what happens is to defeat Thanos, Warlock. I have the image on the screen. Spider-Man smashes, I think he smashes the soul gem. Uh, well, yeah, 
Thanos had created this uh, giant, giant uh, version of it. Foe gem. Yeah. Okay. Uh, he, he had, uh, <laughs> see, the, the, this is uh, the first time we become aware of the existence of other soul gems. Hold forth, please, sir. Yep. Uh, so at the end of. Uh, uh, Warlock has a little internal tussle with uh, the the uh, sentience of the soul gem in mm. Warlock number fifteen, mm. where the gem tells him, "I am one of the six. Yes. Yeah, so that's the first hint we get. And then in uh, the Avengers Annual number seven, then we learn that there are in fact six of them, and that uh, Thanos has managed to gather all of them but the soul gem. He just sort of uh, simulates the energies of the soul gem because he even he was afraid to handle the soul gem lest he sacrifice his own right. soul. Uh, so, but he uses the the other five gems and uh, whatever reproduction of the soul gem he's able to come up with to create this one big gem that he uses as the energy source for the uh, cannon that he's going to use to destroy the sun and all the other stars in the cosmos. And so that is what Spider-Man goes which, on to destroy. Which then brings a, res- a temporarily resurrected version of Warlock. I have the image on the screen. Who he calls himself the Ultimate Avenger. He's like a being cast in like pure energy, and he turns Thanos to stone, which we, which we saw at the end of that in the Captain Marvel graphic novel when, when, they, when they go back, back to the sanctuary to get Thanos' petrified remains. And Warlock defeats Thanos, and then he returns to the soul world. Thanos is seemingly dead, seemingly, in this petrified form. And as you said, Marvel sort of gives a eulogy for Adam Warlock, and it seems his torment is over, and he's with his two closest companions in this utopia of the soul world. But that is not the end of Warlock's uh, saga. Any comments you want to make about this initial, very important period of the character? Um, I, I think I'm going to refrain. All right. Now, before we go any further, I should because we, we, we talk a lot about Warlock, we should talk about his powers so people understand how he's able to do all of this. So again, through the, the pinnacle of human evolution created by those scientists in the Enclave, um, the cocoon, as you mentioned, gives him regenerative powers whenever he needs to restore himself or uh, find sanctuary if he's going through some kind of crisis, for example. Uh, Warlock can absorb, consume, manipulate energy. His strength is, I mean, he can fight, fought, fought Thor, so he has incredible strength. Uh, sp- speed, stamina, durability, agility, re- reflexes, all superhuman. Now, is this all from what the scientists did, or has this been further developed? What do you think? Uh, no, he, he gained more power as yeah. he went along. And is, how, how did he gain them? Just through his cosmic experiences? or The high evolutionary probably helped. Yeah. Um, but, you know, every time he comes out of that cocoon. I mean, True. I, Perhaps he's just kind of uh, evolving and adapting to suit the uh, the, you know, the sidereal circumstances in which he <laughs> finds himself. And of course, Warlock. Gotta love you, Murd. He <laughs> mutual, my friend. Like Thanos, and they establish that Thanos and Warlock are linked in that they're outside quote the cosmic norm, and they can die, but they're always reborn. So you get the sense that. And I, I haven't finished the Starlin Infinity graphic novels. I just gave you that last volume. Um, that they both serve a greater purpose in sort of, sort of the grand cosmic tapestry of the Marvel Universe because they seem to fulfill this role where in various stories they often need to work together as much as they're often at loggerheads, essentially. And they keep being resurrected. So it's, it's, I'm, it seems like they, they're serving some grand purpose that maybe, maybe hasn't been fully revealed to us yet. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Or? 
Um, <laughs> uh, my thoughts on that uh, don't fit uh, into my larynx right now. <laughs> We've been at this a long time, and uh, yeah, it, it's getting late, and my mind's expanded about as far as it's going to go. Understood, at this brother. late hour, I think. Understood, but, yes, understood. That, uh, clearly, there is some great, you know, some greater purpose for these two characters. They are inextricably linked, but in a way that only Jim Starlin understands. Fully. Indeed. Now, of course, uh, Warlock can also create space warps. He can survive in the vacuum of space. He can fly. He can emit energy blasts. This, this is a, he's a heavy hitter in the Marvel Universe. I mean, he's not someone to be trifled with. A uh, very powerful being. Now, we're going to kind of wind up here with Warlock, just that he becomes, he's brought back in the 1990s uh, in both Silver Surfer, as we mentioned, and then in the Infinity Gauntlet. We, we reviewed the Infinity Gauntlet in one of our Book of the Month episodes. Just to kind of close here, where would you place Warlock in sort of his more recent history as, as, as a character, like in the Marvel Universe, in terms of the Infinity Watch, and what, what, what do you see his role as in, the, in, the, in those stories, essentially? Uh, well, he's... Hmm, well, he's a... Oh. Can you repeat the question? Sure. Chris? Where do you... In post-Infinity Gauntlet, all that... Where do you, what do you see Warlock's role as a character in the Marvel Universe? It, it, because they've done, so mu- they've done so many things with him now. Um, do you see him as a protector, a guardian, or still a tormented individual, essentially? I see him as the David Bowie of the cosmic <laughs> <laughs> sector of the Marvel Universe. He, he's just... He's, he's a, a superhero adventure karma chameleon. He's just... <laughs> He's a little bit different every time, and that's part of the character's nature. That's what we keep saying. Every time he comes out of the cocoon, his uh, his powers have changed a little. His attitude has changed a little. His role has changed yeah. a little. He's never quite the same warlock twice. Um, but, uh, yeah, d- during the infinity phase, though, he, was, uh, he became a standard bearer for a new... Uh, iteration of Marvel Cosmic Comics. Yes. You know, the Silver Surfer had sort of uh, borne the standard alone for a while, and uh, uh, but then uh, Starlin took over as creator of that series and uh, was able to bring back some of his old creations, uh, including, uh, well, you know, as we said, he didn't create Warlock technically, but he created the version of Warlock yes. everybody knows. He's made the character his own, brought him back there. And uh, so Warlock then became sort of a, a, a cosmic sentinel. Mm-hmm. Um, he... He was standing guard against, uh, you know, he was kind of the lest we forget figure. He wanted to, his role and that of his friends in the Infinity Watch was to prevent abuses of the uh, phenomenal cosmic power in the future. Pip, Gamora, Drax, Moondragon, I think a, refor- well, a reformed Thanos at that time. Uh, well, that's, that's the thing. Um, yeah. Okay, so we, we have done a Book of the Month Club episode about yeah. Infinity Gauntlet. Yes. So you know, I, I refer people to that. Um, I should probably give people an episode number if uh, such a thing can be obtained. And I'm pretty sure it can with the wonders of uh, contemporary search engine <laughs> technology. Uh, there we go, Infinity Gauntlet. Um, okay, it's episode 1552. Thanks, so see that for a few, few further details. But yeah, at the end of that story, uh, Warlock ended up with the Infinity Gauntlet himself. And uh, the Infinity Watch series, which ran for 42 issues mm. in the 90s. And you're um, a fan of that series, of course. I am. Yeah. Yeah, I'm starting to, Marvel is starting to trade it now, actually. Excellent. And uh, so I, I've got a good chunk of the issues myself that I bought when they were coming out. But I've also got the first trade. Mm. I think you may even have uh, put I that did. trade in my yeah. hands, actually. Yeah. So I thank you for that. that, brother. Uh, but yeah, that series began uh, right where the Infinity Gauntlet series left off with um, 
Adam Warlock facing off against a Congress of cosmic entities, uh, you know, led by you know the, the plaintiff Eternity, represent the living embodiment of the universe. Eternity arguing uh, with the Living Tribunal that uh, Warlock should not be allowed to wield that much power since his history of mental instability and uh, internal torment. Mm. And, I mean, he, in uh, the, the first Starlin run, he literally, Warlock literally embraces madness yes. in the hopes that he could better understand his foe, the Magus. Yes. Uh, and so that, that is uh, entered as evidence against him. Yeah. And uh, the Tribunal finds against him and uh, tells him that he has to distribute the gems uh, to persons of, or beings of his choosing, which Eternity... Uh, or takes strong in, uh, issue with, mm-hmm. but uh, Tribunal basically shushes Eternity. And uh, the Warlock then uh, goes about distributing the gems to worthy uh, allies. And they form this little team, the Infinity Watch. Mm-hmm. They set up shop on Monster Island, the classic Marvel Universe locale. <laughs> and that's where they hang out for the next 42 issues, uh, most of which, uh, all but the last year of which, are, are written by Starlin. Yeah. Yes, teaming up with such artists as Rick Leonardi, Angel Medina, and so on. Uh, but yeah, eventually we do... Yeah, so Drax gets the power gem, Pip gets the space gem, and he teleports all over the place, getting mm. into trouble. Gamora <laughs> gets the time gem, Moondragon, of course, gets the mind gem. Mm. Warlock retains the soul gem, since he's kind of grown fond of it, I guess, mm. and he's, he's sort of used to the terrible mm. burden it represents, you know, restraining its vampiric right. urges. Uh, the reality gem, though, goes to a mystery sixth Infinity Watchman. And it's not until uh, a couple of years later that we learn, I think it's literally two years later, we learn that Thanos is, in mm. fact, that, that individual. He is uh, made the custodian of the reality gem. That's why he has it and is able to summon Captain Marvel back to life right. in that Cosmic Powers Unlimited story I mentioned a while ago. So, yes, uh, that, that's the Infinity Watch. And uh, they, uh, they, they battle you know, mind-bending cosmic threats of various types over the years. And... Uh, and then there are also the uh, the next you know so, so you, I, I'm just going to just take the the gauntlet and run with it here, please. Yep, since uh, the, um, the '90s uh, Infinity Gem stuff is is kind of my wheelhouse. Yep. It's what got me into comics in the first yep. place. In fact, the very story that got me into comics. Uh, back in 1992, was a very heavily Warlock-centric. That's the Infinity War miniseries, which is the sequel to the Infinity Gauntlet. Uh, we learn that uh, when Warlock gained the Infinity Gauntlet at the end of the eponymous miniseries, uh, he, one of the first things he did was subconsciously purge himself of all mortal concepts of so-called good right. and evil. You know, to make himself a being of pure rationality and logic, because he felt that was the kind of godly being that the universe deserved. Uh, however, those expunged good and evil aspects of himself, himself. Yes, they yeah. did. As what else? The Magus. Mm-hmm. Except he's uh, ditched the afro and now has this little <laughs> sort of uh, martial artist ponytail samurai thing going 90s. on. And, uh, yes, 90s, precisely, that says it all. <laughs> and the Magus concocts his own scheme to gather the Infinity Gems and use them himself to become the new master of reality. To do this, he uh, comes up with the dark doppelgangers of almost every superhuman being on Earth. I loved those dark doppelgangers so much <laughs> as a 13-year-old kid. And uh, he's got all kinds of machinations in place. And eventually he does, he not only gets all the gems together, but he also uh, manipulates events so that uh, Eternity, who has been rendered near catatonic by other schemes of the Maguses, Eternity is prevailed upon by other cosmic beings to allow the Infinity Gems to work in concert again. Because that was one of the uh, stipulations of the... uh, 
that trial that took the mm. gauntlet away from Warlock in the first place in Infinity Watch number one. Uh, that uh, the, the six gems could only work together to form the Infinity Gauntlet again if Eternity gave his express permission. And it seemed to uh, certain parties that uh, the only way to stop the Magus's plans would be to gather the gems together again and uh, use them against the Magus, little suspecting that the Magus had already managed to filch them all and gather them <laughs> unto himself. And then Eternity gave his permission for the gems to work together, and the Magus becomes all-powerful. Um, but uh, he is then defeated and banished into the Soul Gem himself, where he discovers he, his is a special type of torment there because he's not even a complete soul. He's only a part of right, a soul, right. of Warlock's soul. So he, he's trapped in the soul world, but he can't even interact with the other souls that are trapped there. So Utopia is denied him. Less than a shade. Nothing. Less than nothing. His <laughs> own words, as we, we sort of uh, pull away into a long shot of him standing tiny and very alone mm. in the middle of the soul world. And then the Infinity Crusade happened in 1993. That's when the uh, good aspect of Warlock's pers uh, personality, the goddess, sort of his anima, mm -hmm. uh, game, uh, she has her own ideas uh, for uh, the Infinity Gems. And uh, that series was not that good, so we're not going to say any more about that right now. <laughs> Even I was kind of off-board with the whole Infinity... And ladies and gentlemen, if Murr didn't find a Marvel Cosmic Infinity story, gem story good, it's probably not worth your time. Yep, it's uh, mainly just the goddess uh, prevailing upon those Marvel characters who had a strong sense of spirituality mm. to come to her side to do... We never really got a very clear idea of what she was going to do. Mm. She was just kind of developing her own little cult... This is a sort of benign little bunch of super moonies that she's going <laughs> to... Yeah, but yeah. And, and then she was uh, uh, drawn into the soul world as well mm. by the time all was said and done. And that's your Infinity Crusade. So that wrapped up. The Infinity Watch uh, folded up its tent uh, with issue number 42. John Arcudi, actually another writer wow. that I like and respect. Uh, he wrote uh, the last year of that series. Um, so that ended... Oh, what year? Well, I can't even read my own notes. <laughs> uh, yeah, it ended in uh, 1995. Okay, and right after that, Warlock was then sucked into the um, the madness of the Ultraverse. Right, that's right. Yeah, he actually exited the Marvel Universe for a time and was in the, the Ultraverse. Uh, the Infinity Gems went with him, and he was over there trying to get them back. He uh, ran into the uh, cosmic vampire Rune mm -hmm. while he was there. He worked as an with... Ultraverse character, right? Yes, yeah. yes, uh, created by Barry Windsor Smith. Okay, and uh, he joined. He uh, cooperated with uh, Ultra Force for a time, and then and gradually found his way back to the Marvel Universe proper. In 1998, there was a miniseries written and drawn by Tom Lyle in which Elysius died. Oh, I'm not aware of that one. Okay. Yeah, well, the death was later undone by uh -huh. uh, her son, Janice Vell. But okay. uh, that, that miniseries also involved the reanimated corpse of Captain Marvell. Okay. And his son was around, too, of course, and Drax the Destroyer. And it, 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 it was all a part of some silly plan by a new negative zone bad guy called Siphon, who was dispatched by uh, Warlock and mm. friends. And it ends with Warlock back on Earth with uh, his friends Pip and Gamora mm. to try and learn something more about humanity. Mm. Then in 2002, the Infinity Abyss. Yes. Another Infinity story. The Infinity Cycle continues and lives up to its name, apparently. Uh, as <laughs> <laughs> yes, Thanos is involved here, too, as of uh, the... This is uh, Starlin's first attempt at uh, 
redeeming his creation Thanos mm. from what he sees as the ill uses of other creators. Right. So Warlock and friends go up against the Thanosi, who are a bunch of deformed clones mm. of Thanos, created by Thanos himself for his own purposes, but then got out of his control and uh, started wreaking uh, mm. mischief throughout the Marvel Universe. So basically anything that had been done with Thanos, of which uh, Starlin didn't approve, was uh, retconned. Like Doombots, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's just good, Chris. Pretty good. <laughs> yes, so the Thanosi were kind of like, uh, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's an excuse to uh, retcon away yeah. stories yeah. that uh, Starlin didn't like. Uh, and in the middle of all that, uh, Warlock and company, uh, Spider-Man and the Defenders were roped into all of this, too, uh, had to rescue the new reality anchor. Apparently, every few millennia or so, a being is chosen who is supposed to sit in this temple somewhere mm-hmm. out reality and just uh, help to stabilize all that exists by their very existence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the old uh, anchor was a being named Atlas. And uh, Atlas was dying, and uh, the new reality anchor is a two-year-old little girl named Atleza Langan from upstate New York. <laughs> so, yeah, this is uh, uh, it, it's about Warlock getting back in the game. It's about uh, Thanos being you know, relieved of uh, his participation in stories that Starlin didn't like. Right. And, but he also provides us with so this, this cosmic <laughs> subplot, too. And uh, then uh, Warlock also uh, participated in uh, the first six issues of a, the Thanos Angoing series of 2004, mm-hmm. which was written by Starlin yes. as well. Um, but it was at about that t- – it involved Galactus mm-hmm. and an other dimensional being called the Hunger. Uh, but it was about that time that Starlin began to have uh, creative disputes with Marvel. Mm-hmm. This is the early 2000s when Starlin's brand of cosmic – was deemed somewhat embarrassing by certain parties at Marvel. And, uh, embarrassing? Yeah, so Star- Starlin walked at mm-hmm. that point. He had uh, creative differences, mm-hmm. you know, the classic uh, uh, rationale. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a miniseries by Greg Pak and Charlie Adler, which came out uh, just a mere months after Starlin mm-hmm. walked from Marvel, doing something else with Warlock that uh, involved him uh, acquiring a uh, kind of a kid's sister figure named Janie Warlock, also created by the Enclave. Uh, I've never read that miniseries, but uh, I've never heard anything good about it. Okay. So, uh, yeah. And uh, uh, Warlock was also involved in the Abnett and Lanning Guardians of the Galaxy right. series eventually. Right. Um, and then... In 2014, then, we get to the uh, most recent cycle of uh, original graphic novels by Starlin. You know, the Infinity Revelation, the Infinity Relativity, and right here, the Infinity Finale. I've read the first two, love them. I haven't read that one yet. Yep, which also involves the Guardians of the Galaxy. Since Starlin, you know, as uh, proprietary a feeling as he has for these characters, uh, um, uh, Thanos and Warlock. And Gamora, for that matter. Yes, yeah. uh, well, well, yeah. yes, sir. She too, yeah. and well, and and you no know, Drax and Moon Dragon and all the rest. You know, he he tries to be as respectful as he can, you know, to a point, mm-hmm. of, uh, to the things that other creators are doing with them. So you get to see some of the, uh, uh, the, the that uh, group of uh, underlings that uh, Thanos used during the Infinity story that uh, Jonathan Hickman did. Mm-hmm. People like Corvus Glaive and right, so right, forth. Right, right, right. Yeah, so you you get to see a little bit of them in there and the, the Guardians of the Galaxy since. Um, you know, Drax is one of them, after all, and uh, and Warlock was a member of their team. You know, Starlin actually tries to use them in this most recent. And isn't there a, a, a plot device in the Guardians stories where an alternate version of Warlock is created? 
Uh, yeah, that, that's in these uh, graphic novels where right, the uh, okay. Earth 616 version of Warlock dies. Dies, right. Okay. And, uh, this is a, where I got a little cross-eyed. Yeah, yeah and uh, a version of Warlock from another reality who is actually absorbed and become one with the entire totality of his universe. Yeah. So he's unimaginably powerful right. now. He's, he's like a... He's like a whole battery of cosmic cubes all in himself. <laughs> Maybe even as powerful as the Infinity Gauntlet. Who knows? He, 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 but he's, uh, he, he's convinced himself, you know, Swamp Thing style, mm-hmm. that he's still uh, Adam Warlock. But haven't they brought back the original Warlock, though, too? I think that happens at the end of okay. the Infinity Finale. Yeah. You know, things Which come as they tend to do. You know, the Lemniscate loop of, uh, of reality and causality is closed. <laughs> and uh, everybody is left pretty much back where they yeah. started. And uh, Warlock and Pip kind of go off to party at the end of all of it but yeah for a little while they're in these uh, the middle act of this uh, trilogy of graphic novels we do have an alternate reality adam warlock who is unimaginably powerful well, loitering I have, around i have to, I have to finish reading that saga my friend uh, do you have any closing comments on uh, i think we shot a bolt <laughs> that's my closing comment yeah <laughs> Yeah, we, we've shot several karmic bolts, yes. I think, at, at this point. But yes, uh, well, viva hope, la Marvel Cosmic. I hope our listeners enjoyed uh, this valiant effort at trying to capture the essence of three of the most important characters that make up yes. Marvel Cosmic. Three characters who have never been very easily explained. But yeah. uh, I think I don't think anyone could find fault with the, or too deep fault with the job that we've done well, in the time allotted. I hope people had fun with it. I would like to point out to folks that there is actually a podcast devoted entirely to Adam Warlock and Thanos out there. It's called really? Resurrections. And I'm sure since that's all they do, it's their area of specialty, that they could probably do a more oh, thorough wow. job than we've done in this mere three and a half hours running time. <laughs> so uh, if you're a fan of these characters, give them a try. Oh, I'm going to check that out. Great tip, Murd. All right, you want to take us out with our sponsors? Oh, of course. Okay, so this uh, triple-strength episode of Comic Geek Speak was brought to you by the dual sponsors, the Binary Star of the Collection Drawer Company. Visit them at CollectionDrawer.com and learn more about their drawer box storage system. Your collection will thank you. And also SuperheroStuff.com, purveyor of fine licensed apparel and other goodies based on your favorite geeky entertainment properties. It's where you go for all of your superhero stuff! Oh, yes, that's right. Shane's not here. Ah! <laughs> oh, yeah, this is the part where I have to tell you how to get in touch with us and all of that good stuff. Okay, so, uh, oh, great. And the link isn't working. <laughs> oh, what new cosmic twist of fate is this? Okay, um, all right, so if you'd like to send us an email, uh, the address is uh, comicgeekspeak at gmail.com. There we go. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you can call us at 267-702-6642. You can like us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. We're at Comic Geek Speak there. Uh, We encourage you to stop by thecomicforums.vanillaforums.com to uh, leave whatever uh, uh, cosmic uh, uh, anecdotes and or... uh, Missives? yeah, expressions of awe and wonderment you may feel at uh, at these characters, uh, you know, poke holes in the things that we've said here. We encourage any kind of feedback you may have about this episode and many others. Uh, also stop by the comicforums.vanillaforums.com to participate in a variety of discussions with fellow comic fans and CGS listeners on a slew of different topics. It's a neat little community we've built there. We encourage everyone to be a part of it. Uh, we thank everyone who has ever uh, donated to the show or recently or in the past. We really appreciate it. Couldn't do the show without you. And as always, we are uniting the world's mightiest heroes one listener at a time. 